The following is a conversation with Sagar Anjadi. He is a DC-based political correspondent, host of The Rising with Crystal Ball, and host of the Realignment podcast with Marshall Kozlov. He has interviewed Donald Trump four times and has interviewed a lot of major political figures and human beings who wield power. He loves policy and loves history, which makes him a great person to sail through the uh, sometimes stormy waters of political discourse. He showed up to this conversation with a gift of the second volume of Ian Kershaw's biography on Hitler, a two-volume set that is widely acknowledged as one of the greatest, if not the greatest, most definitive studies of Hitler. Nothing wins my heart faster on a first meeting or a first date than a great book about the darkest aspects of human nature and human history. I think I started saying that as a joke, but actually there's probably a lot of truth to it. I love it when we skip the small talk and go straight to the in-depth conversation about the best and worst of human nature. Quick mention of our sponsors, Jordan Harbinger Show, Grammarly Grammar Assistant, Eight Sleep Self-Cooling Bed, and Magic Spoon Low-Carb Cereal. Click the sponsor links to get a discount and to support this podcast. As a side note, let me say that for better or for worse, I would like to avoid the trap of surface political bickering of the day. I do find politics fascinating, but not the talking points produced by the industrial engagement complex of red versus blue division. Instead, I'm fascinated by human beings who seek power and how power changes them. I don't have a political affiliation and my ideas, at least I hope so, are defined more by curiosity and learning in the face of uncertainty and less by the echo chambers who tell me what I'm supposed to think. I'm constantly evolving, learning, and doing my best to do so without ego and with empathy. Please be patient with me. As far as I'm aware, I do not have any derangement syndromes, nor do I get a medical prescription of blue, red, white, or black pills. If I say something, I say it because I'm genuinely thinking and struggling with the ideas. I have no agenda, just a bit of a hope to add more love to the world. If you enjoyed this thing, subscribe on YouTube, review it on Apple Podcasts, follow on Spotify, support it on Patreon, or connect with me on Twitter at Lex Friedman. As usual, I'll do a few minutes of ads now and no ads in the middle. I'm trying to have more fun with these. Yes, I know, I'm not exactly the epitome of fun. So hopefully if you're stuck in a prison cell listening to these ads, uh, they're at least interesting, but I do give you timestamps you can skip. If you do skip, please still check out the sponsors Click the links, buy all their stuff. It really is the best way to support this podcast. This episode is sponsored by The Jordan Harbinger Show. Go to jordanharbinger.com slash Lex. Subscribe to it, listen, you won't regret it. He's a great interviewer and I especially like his Feedback Fridays episodes where his combination of fearlessness and thoughtfulness is especially on display. Touching topics of sex, corruption, mental disorder, hate, love, and everything in between. Speaking of the controversial topics, I am a little bit feeling the burden of three-hour conversations in the sense that I'm trying to articulate uh, difficult ideas, some of which I've not thoroughly thought through, some of which are simply just devil's advocate and almost just like tossing up ideas to see how they feel when they kind of exit my mind and exit my mouth. But the result is it can generate some kind of ridiculous rants, I think, or if you take it out of context or even in context, it can generate things that just 
are patently untrue. And I struggle with this because it's very difficult for me to go back and then correct myself unless it's an obvious huge error. There could be small errors. That does weigh on me, but I don't think I'm able to shirk away from that. So I have to pay the cost of making mistakes and uh, to the best of my ability, apologize and correct myself and so on and keep moving forward, but not pretend like just because it's three, four hours of conversation, I get a free sort of pass to say anything I want. I'm, I do try to speak with care, with rigor, even about controversial topics. Again, not afraid to bring anything up, but uh, wanna carry the responsibility of my words. Anyway, go to jordanharbinger.com slash lex. It's how he knows I sent you. That's jordanharbinger.com slash lex. This show is sponsored by Grammarly, a writing assistant tool that checks spelling, grammar, sentence structure, and readability. Grammarly Premium, the version you pay for, and the version I desperately hope you sign up for, <laughs> offers a bunch of extra features. My favorite is the clarity check, which helps detect rambling chaos like this very conversation here that many of us can descend into. I think all the different tools that Grammarly provides challenge your writing in exactly the right way should be challenged. All of us have different styles, but uh, for me, at the end of the day, I think simplicity is beautiful. I really try to strive for simplicity. I'm working on a couple of research papers, and even there, even in technical writing, I feel that there's a responsibility to be articulate and simple. Big complicated technical words should only be used when they are the most effective way to convey a specific concept, that any simpler word would result in an oversimplification that will alter the meaning. But I find the challenge of sort of asking myself, how can I say this simply that a lot of people could understand is a really useful challenge for even the most complicated ideas. So that's true for like regular writing, that's true for like tweeting and writing emails, but it's also true for technical writing. And perhaps if uh, I actually have anything interesting to say in a book form one day, I'll be able to express in book form. Anyway, Grammarly's available basically on any platform and major sites and apps like Gmail and Twitter and so on. Get 20% off Grammarly Premium by signing up at grammarly.com slash lex. That's 20% off at grammarly.com slash lex. This episode is also sponsored by Asleep and its Pod Pro mattress. It controls temperature with an app, is packed with sensors, and can cool down to as low as 55 degrees on each side of the bed separately. It can also heat up to some ridiculous amount, but um. I'm definitely one of the people that likes it cold when I sleep. And there's science to it. Listen to my chat with Andrew Huberman about sleep, or actually just listen to Andrew's podcast, which is uh, quite incredible. I recommend it highly. It's called the Huberman Lab Podcast. But anyway, there's science for cold being good for sleep. And that's definitely something anecdotally I could confirm. I've been really enjoying the, the cold bed surface with a warm blanket, both for power naps and just like a full night's sleep. It's heaven. They have a Pod Pro cover, so you can just add that to your mattress without having to buy theirs. But their mattress is pretty nice, I gotta say. I can track a bunch of metrics like heart rate variability, but cooling alone is worth the money. Go to 8sleep.com slash Lex to get special savings. That's 8sleep.com slash Lex. This episode is also sponsored by Magic Spoon, low-carb, keto-friendly cereal. It has zero sugar, 11 grams of protein, and only three net grams of carbs. 
They have a new limited edition flavor this month, cookies and cream and maple waffle. My favorite flavor is cocoa, as I don't seem to shut up about, but these sound pretty good, so I'll try them out. It's kind of exciting to see the innovation that's delivered by Magic Spoon in, in cereal form. It's kind of tragic to think about my diet in high school when I was wrestling, to think that I was eating cereal with all that sugar, and then coupling that with like starving myself to make weight, going down to, I, I think I started at 112, then 119, 125, then I think up to 145. But I just remember not understanding diet. I think there was two problems. So one problem is the communication and understanding of basic nutrition science was just not, maybe at least in my circles, was not effectively communicated. And at the same time, the nutrition side, the food side of things was not catching up to what, what is healthy. So I think Magic Spoon is, a, is actually a nice combination of these two fields catching up to what's actually good for society. So one, the nutrition science has been a lot of exciting developments. And two, on the food science, like the engineering, the foods that are able to deliver on the nutrition science, that's really exciting. And Magic Spoon, obviously, with like low-carb cereal is an implementation of that. So it allows me to be healthy while still experiencing that like joy of childhood, which cereal represents while I'm supposedly an adult. Anyway, Magic Spoon has a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it, they refund it. Uh, 100 happiness guarantee, I think, is something even uh, Dostoevsky, Sartre, and Camus would get behind. So go to magicspoon.com slash lex and use code LEX at checkout to save five bucks off your order this month. That's magicspoon.com slash LEX and use code LEX. And now here's my conversation with Sagar and Jetty. There's no uh, better gifts in this world than a book about Hitler. So thank you so much. I, I've gotten the gift when I was, what were you talking yes, about? Yes, right, right. The watch from Joe Rogan. And this almost beats it. So uh, <laughs> so tell me what uh, this particular book on Hitler is. So this is volume two. Yes. So this is Ian Kershaw. He wrote the famous two volume on Hitler. I'm a big book nerd and I spend a lot of time reading biographies. In particular, so this one, um, if you need a one volume, Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, right? I think you talked about that, William yeah. Shire, because that's like Hitler's rise, Nazi Germany, the war, etc. But I like bios because it's the a good biography is story of the times, right? And so this one, the first volume, it does exactly that, which is that it doesn't just tell the story of Hitler. It's the context of poor, you know, this kid in Austria and he's got all these dreams, but then actually pretty courageous in terms of World War One, right? Gets pinned a medal on by the Kaiser. And then what it's like to have to lose World War One and actually like lose this this stain. And then the rise within everybody knows that story, the beer hall putsch and all that. This one I like and the reason I like Kershaw is obviously, number one, it's English, which is actually hard, right? Like in order to write that story, who can do both the primary source material and then translate it for people like us. But he tells the dynamic story of Hitler so well 
um, in the second volume, just like the the level of detail. And you've you've talked about this, Lex. Like, what was it like inside that room, mm-hmm. inside with Chamberlain? Like, yeah. what was it like in terms of who was this like magnetic madman who did convince the smartest people in the world at the time? And you know, up until like 1940, the Soviet gamble like was a tre- it took tremendous risks, but like highly calculated. Yeah. Thinking, no, 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 I'm not going to pay for this one. I'm not going to pay for this one. And it put himself, he had a remarkable ability, not just to put himself in the minds of the German people, but in terms of his adversaries. Like with when he was across from Mussolini. Calculate, he's like, how exactly did Mussolini, the guy who created fascism, becomes like second fiddle to Hitler? I think it's an amazing bio. And yeah, like Ian Kershaw, along with Richard Evans, two of my favorite authors on the Third Reich. No question. Do you think he was born this way, that charisma, whatever that is, or was it something he developed strategically? That's like the question you apply to some of the great leaders. Was he just a madman who had the instinct to be able to control people when in the room together with them? Or is this like he worked at it? I think he worked at it. and But but also there is an innate quality. I'm forgetting his name, his lifelong, Rud- Rudolf, ha- the one who flew to Berlin in like 1940. I, I forget his names. name. Anyway, so he, he helped Hitler write Mein Kampf. And he was like slavishly yeah. devoted to him in prison. This is 1925 or something like that. And so you read that and you're like, well, how does he get this like crank wacko to basically believe he's like the second coming, help him write this book? I mean, literally, they lived together in the prison cell and they would wake up every day. And as he was composing Mein Kampf and because of the beer hall putsch and all that had this like absolute ability to gather people around him. I think his greatest skill was is he was just a very good politician. Truly. I mean, if you look at his ability in order to read coalitional politics and then convince exactly the right people in order to follow him. I think I heard you ask this once and I've thought about it a lot, which is like, who could have stopped Hitler in Germany, right? It's always like the ever-present question. Of course, like the whole baby Hitler thing. Really, the answer is Hindenburg. Like Hindenburg was the person who could have stopped and had the immense standing within the German public. The only, you know, real like war hero definitely was personally skeptical of fascism and Nazism. And didn't but like he was Hitler. Too, and didn't like him. And he <laughs> knew he was full of shit. He was like, yeah, I think this guy is dangerous. I think this guy could do a lot of damage to the Republic. But he acceded basically to Hitler at the time. And I think that he was one of the main people who could have done something about it. And also he was able to uh, convince the generals, the military. I mean, that was, that was very interesting. And to convince Chamberlain and just, the other political leaders. There's that's something I often think about because we're just reading books about these people. I think about with like Jeffrey Epstein, for example. Oh yeah. Like evil people, not evil, but people have done evil things. Let's not go to the Dan Carlin thing of what is evil. <laughs> uh, people that do evil things, I wonder what they are like in a room because I know quite a lot of intelligent people that were uh um did not see uh did not see the evil in Jeffrey Epstein and spend time with him and not were not bothered by it in the same sense Hitler it seems like he was able to get just even on a before he had power because people get intoxicated by power and yep. so on they want to be close to power but even before he had power he was able to convince people and it's unclear like is there something that's more than words it's like the way you, I mean, that people talk, tell stories about like this piercing look and whatever, 
all that kind of stuff. I, I wonder if that if that's somehow a part of it. Like that has to be the base floor of any of these charismatic leaders. You have to be able to, in a room alone, be able to convince anybody of anything. So I can tell you from my personal experience, one of the best educated lessons I got was when I got to meet Trump. So I interviewed Trump four different times as a journalist, spent like two and a half hours with him in the Oval Office, not alone, but like me and one person and like the press secretary. And that was it. So I actually got to observe him. And as a guy who reads these types of books, right? And, you know, you think of Trump, obviously most people, what they see on television, Mm -hmm. you know, in articles and more, but being able to observe it like one-on-one, I was closer to him than, you know, than I am right now from you. That was one of the most educational experiences I got because it's like you just said, the look, the the leaning forward, the way he talks, his, the way he is a master at taking the question and answering exactly which part he wants. And then if you try and follow up, he's like, excuse me, ex-, you know, like yeah. he, he, he knows. <laughs> and then whenever you're talking, it's not that he's annoyed about getting interrupted. If he realizes he's been mirandering and then you interrupt him, all good. But if he's striving home a point, which he has to make sure appears in your transcript mm-hmm. or whatever, it's it's like it really was fascinating for me to look at. And what was also crazy with Trump is I realized how much he was living in the moment. So like when I went to the Oval, you know, I've read all these biographies and like I walk in, I'm like, holy shit. <laughs> You're like, I'm in the Oval Office. Well, like, you interviewed him in the Oval Office. In the Oval, every time was in the Oval Office. You scared shitless? Sorry. To- well, I wasn't scared. I was just. Look, it's the Oval Office, right? I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm this nerd. He was like this kid. I, when I'm so, I will admit this here. Like I printed out on my dad's label maker when I was like seven and I wrote like the Oval Office on my bedroom. So I was like, you know, a huge nerd, yeah. like obviously egomaniacal, even from seven. But so like for this, I mean, it was huge, right? I'm like this 25 year old kid and like I walk in there and like I see the couch, right? And yeah. I'm like, oh man, like that's Kissinger. Like, you know, I'm like, that's where like Kissinger and Nixon got on their knees. And you see over by the door and you're like, are the scuff marks still there from when Eisenhower used to play golf? You know, this is all running through my mind. Yeah. With Trump, none of it was there. Yeah. None of it, right? So like, it's all in the even, moment. Even the desk, like, I put my phone on the desk to record. Yeah. And I'm like, this is the fucking resolute <laughs> desk. I'm like, I shouldn't put my phone on this thing, right? Yeah. And, and I'm like, HMS resolute, you know, all yeah. that, you know, national. And even for him, he doesn't think about any of it. It was like, amazing to me like he had this portrait of andrew jackson right next to his to the uh i think from on the fireplace like right here on the right and the most revealing question was when i was like mr president what are people going to remember you for in a hundred years and he was like he he had he was like i don't know like veterans choice he, he like has a list in front of him yeah. of like his accomplishments which is question, by the way yeah well i i mean that's what i wanted to know yeah. and he's like veterans choice and i remember looking at him being like it's not going to be better. <laughs> you know, like, I'd be like, I'm like, I'm looking at you, Donald Trump, the harbinger of something new. Yeah. We still don't know what the hell it is. And so I realized with these guys and their charisma and more is that they don't think about themselves the way that we think about them. Mm-hmm. And that was actually important to understand because a lot of people are like, Trump is playing all this chess. I'm like, I assure you, he's not. Like, he's truly living. One time I was interviewing him and he had like a certificate that he had to sign or something on his desk. He's like, a, it was like child almost. Like he got distracted by it. He's like, oh, what's this? You know, he's yeah. just like picking up and I was like, wow, like this, this is the guy. Like this is what he is. Well, I wonder if that was a different person because you were recording. 
uh, then so I, offline at I a I can party. tell you. Yes. Well, here's the thing though, because that's another part of it. Because that two hours, I would say like half of that was not on the record. Mm -hmm. So like whenever he's off the record, he changes completely, right? I, I, I don't want to like go into too much of it or yeah. whatever, but like he, uh, I mean, he is so mindful of when that camera is on mm -hmm. and when the mic is hot in terms of the language that he uses, what he's willing to admit, what he's willing to talk about, how he's willing to even appear in front of his staff. Um, I think the most revealing thing Trump ever did was there was this press conference like right after he lost the, the uh, right after the midterm elections mm -hmm. in 2018. And one of the journalists was like, Mr. President, thank you for doing this press conference. And he looks at him and he goes, it's called earned media. It's worth billions. <laughs> he, just, he just like had so much disdain for him because he's like, I'm not doing this for you. He's like, I'm doing this for me. So he's really aware of the narrative of the story. I mean, that yeah. the people have talked about that all comes from the tabloid media of the from New York and so on. He's a master of that. But I've also heard stories of just in private, he's a really... I don't want to overuse the word charismatic, but just like he is a really interesting, almost like um, friendly, like a good person. Like, yeah. It, yeah, like that's what I heard. Uh, I've heard actually surprising the same thing about yeah. Hillary Clinton. Uh, <laughs> and like <laughs> that, I can't tell you anything about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But like the the way they present themselves is perhaps very different than they are as human beings one on one. That that's something. Uh, Maybe that's just like a skill thing. Maybe, maybe w the way they present themselves in public is actually their, their. Uh, uh, I mean, almost their real self, and they're just really good in private, one on one, to go into this mode of just being really intimate in some kind of human way. I think that's part of it because I, I would notice that with Trump. You know, he's like it's almost like a tour guide. It'd be, it was very like it's 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 very crazy, right? Because you're like you're in the Oval. I mean, it's his office. And he's like, he's like, do you guys want anything? He's like, you want a Diet Coke? Because he drinks like all this Diet Coke. That's and awesome. He, you know? And then, great. Unapologetic. He's, yeah, he's just I like, he's like, you guys want a Diet Coke, right? And you're sitting there and you're like, the way he he's able to like, like the last time we interviewed him, he he wanted to do it outside um, because he like, he's studied himself from all angles and he knows exactly how he looks on a camera and with which lighting. Mm -hmm. And so we were supposed to interview him on camera in the Oval Office, which is actually rare. Like you don't yeah. usually get that. And they ended up moving it outside at the last minute. And he came out and he's like, hey, I picked this spot for you. He's like, great lighting. Yeah. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, you are your own like lighting yeah. director. Yeah. You're the president. Right? It's great. It's, it's so funny. <laughs> But it's like you said, he's he's very charismatic and friendly. I mean, you wouldn't know. I mean, look, I, this is what I mean in terms of the dyn dynamism of these people that gets lost. And I think even he knows that. Like, I don't think he would want that side of him that I you know, that you see in those off the record moments and more in order to come out because he's very keen about how exactly he presents to the public. It's like, you know, even his presidential portrait, everybody usually smiles and he refused to smile. He was like, I want to look like Winston Churchill, you know, like even he knew that. Do you think he believes that he, um, what, what he kind of implies that he is one of, if not the greatest presidents in American history? Like people kind of laugh at this, but there's quite, I mean, there's quite a lot of people, first of all, that make the argument that he's the greatest president in history. Like, I've heard this argument being made. Uh, and I mean, I don't know what the, first of all, I don't care. Like, you can't 
make an argument that anyone is the greatest. That's just that just uh, yeah. I I come from a school of like being humble and modest and so on. It's like even Michael, you can't have that conversation. <laughs> okay, uh, so I like that he's humble enough to say like uh, Abraham Lincoln and whatever. Like uh, no, 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 he says maybe Lincoln. Maybe remember that he maybe. says maybe Lincoln. Uh, <laughs> do you think he actually believes that or is that something he understands will uh, create news and also perhaps more importantly piss off a, a large number of people is is he almost like a musician masterfully playing the emotions of the public or does he or, or and does he believe when he looks in the mirror I'm one of the greatest men in history combination of all three um, I do think he believes it. And for the reason why is I don't think he knows that much about U.S. history. I, I really mean that. Like, And that's what I meant whenever I was in there and I realized he was just living in the moment. I don't think he knew all that much about why. I mean, this is why he was elected in many ways, right? So I'm not I'm not saying this is a Norbert. Like, a, I'm not making a judgment with, on this. I'm just saying I do think in his mind he does think he was one of the best presidents in American history, largely because, and I encountered this with a lot of people who work for him, which is that they didn't really know all that much kind of about what came before and all that. And it's not necessarily to hold it against them because for in many ways, that's what they were elected to do um, or elected to be in many ways. It's an interesting question whether right. knowing history, being a student of history is, uh, is productive or counterproductive. I tend to assume <laughs> I really respect people who are deeply like well-read in history, like presidents that are almost like nerd, history yeah. nerds. I, I admire that. Uh, but maybe that gets in the way. Well, it's, well. <laughs> of governance. I don't know. It's not, it's not, you know, I'm just sort of uh, playing devil's advocate to my own beliefs, but it's possible that focusing on the moment and the issues and letting history, it's like first principles thinking, forget mm -hmm. the lessons of the past and just focus on common sense reasoning through the problems of today. Yeah, it's really hard question. In terms of the modern era, I mean, Obama was a student of history. Yeah. Like he used to have presidential biographers and people over in, I mean, famously, like Robert A. Caro, one of my favorite presidential biographers, he was invited to, you know, have dinner with Obama. And Obama would like pepper some of his, every it was interesting because he'd try and justify some of the things he didn't do by being like, well, if you look at what they had to do and what mm -hmm. I have to deal with, yes. mine's much harder. Yes. So in that way, I was a little pissed off because I'd be like, no, that actually like you're comparing apples to oranges yes. and all that. But if you look at, Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt in particular, this was, I mean, a voracious reader, not of just American history, all history. He that wrote- That's just such a badass. Jesus. Incredible. The, <laughs> the, only, the only president who willed himself to greatness. That's yeah. like the amazing thing about him. He wasn't tested by a crisis, right? Like he wasn't, not, he didn't have the Civil War. He didn't have World War II. He didn't have to found the country, literally, or like, mm -hmm. you know, didn't have to stave off that or he didn't buy you know the louisiana purchase like all that. he mm -hmm. literally came into a pretty you know static country and he could have just governed you know with, with i mean he was the person who came before him was assassinated like he easily could have coasted but he literally willed the country into something more and that is that's always why i focus a lot on him too because i'm like that in many ways i wouldn't say it's easy to be great during crisis i mean like look at trump right yeah. but like but there it can bring out the best within you, yes. but it's a, it's a whole other level to bring out the best within yourself just for the sake of doing it. And yeah. that's 
I think is really interesting. The speeches were amazing. I'm also a sucker for great speeches because mm-hmm. I, I I tend to uh, see the role of the president as in part like inspirer in chief, sort of uh, to be able to, I mean, that's what great leaders do, like CEOs of companies and so on, establish a vision, a clear vision, and like like hit that hard. But the way you establish the vision isn't just like, not to dig at Joe Biden, but <laughs> like like sleepy, boring statements. You have to sell those statements, and you have to you know you have to do it in a way where everybody's paying attention, everybody's excited. Yes, and uh, that uh, Teddy Roosevelt is definitely one of them. Obama was, a, I think, at least early on. I I, I don't know uh, was incredible at that. It does feel that the modern political landscape makes it more difficult to be inspirational in the sense because everything becomes bickering and division. Yes. I do want to ask you please uh, about Trump. <laughs> uh, so you're now a successful podcaster. <laughs> I've talked to Joe about Trump, uh, Joe Rogan, and he, Joe's not interested in talking to Trump. Mm-hmm. It's just fascinating. I try to dig into like why. Yeah. Uh, what would you interview uh, Trump on like realignment, for example? Mm-hmm. And uh, do you think it's possible to do a two, three hour conversation with him where you will get at something like human or you get at something, uh, like we were talking about the facade right. he puts forward. Do you think you get get past that? No, I don't. <laughs> I, I look, I was a White House correspondent. I observe, I observe this man very closely. I interviewed him. I think if that mic is hot, he knows what he's doing. He just he's he's done this too long, Lex. He just knows. But right. do you think he's a different human now after the election? Do, do you no. think that? <laughs> yeah, not at all. I don't. I think he's been the same person since yeah. 1976. I I really do. Like yeah. basically 1976. I studied Trump a lot, and I think he's basically been the core of who he is and elements of that. Ever since he built that, you know, the ice rink in Central Park okay. and got that media attention, that was it. Yeah, he's a fascinating study. I still, I feel uh, there's a hope in me that there would be a podcast like uh, like a Joe Rogan, like a long form podcast where it's something could be, you know, and you're actually a really good person to do that, where you can have a real conversation that looks back at the election and reveals something on us, but perhaps he's thinking about running again. And and so maybe he'll never let down that guard. Yes. But like, you know, I, I just love it when uh, there's this switch in people where you start, start looking back at your life and wanting to tell stories, mm-hmm. like, you know, trying to extract wisdom and like realizing you're in this new phase of life where like the battles have all been fought. Now you're this old, like former warrior, and now you can tell the stories of that time. And it seems like Trump is still at it, like the young warrior he is. He's not in the mode of telling stories. You know what I got from Rogan? He's the only president who didn't age well in office. It's true, right? <laughs> yeah. Like, because, and this is what I mean, because he lives in the moment. Like yeah. the job actually aged Obama. Yeah. I mean, I mean, Bush, same thing. Even Clinton. Clinton was like fat. And yeah. like, he looked miserable by like 2000. HW, like, yeah. I mean, Reagan, famous. Actually, yeah, pretty much everybody I think about. Um, yeah, including John F. Kennedy, who got much sicker while in office. Yeah. The job like weighs on you and makes you physically ill. 
Trump was, he's the only person who just that was he amazing. didn't happen to. He almost gotten stronger. And he was uh, one of the most divisive, like uh, the climate, there's so many people attacking him. So much yeah. hatred, so much love and hatred. And it was just, he. it was, I mean, it was, uh, whatever it was, it was uh, quite masterful and a, and, a, and a fascinating study. I If we, um, if we stick on uh, Hitler for just a minute, uh, what lessons do you take from that time? Do you think it's a unique moment in human history, that World War II? I mean, both Stalin and Hitler, you know, is, is it something that's just uh, an outlier in all of human history in terms of the atrocities, or is there... Uh, lessons to be learned you mentioned we mentioned uh, offline that you're not just a student of the entirety of the history but you also are fascinated by just different like policies and stuff <laughs> <laughs> like what's the immigration policy what's the yeah. policy on science and well, uh, look, third reich in power let me plug it by richard uh richard evans i think is what it was because that actually will tell you like what was it like to live under the nazi regime without the war yeah um yeah, it's a hard question in terms of the lessons that we can learn because there's a lot and it's actually been over, it's been over-indexed almost. I mean, yeah. Everything comes back to Hitler in yeah. a conversation. So I kind of think of it within Mao, Stalin, and Hitler as, I don't want to say payments for, but like the end point payment for the sins and the problems of the monarchical system that evolved within Europe, basically like 1400 mm -hmm. and more. I basically think that 1400, the wars between the state, you know, wars between France, England, the balance of power, eventually World War One, and then serfdom within Russia, the Russian Revolution that birthed Stalin, same thing, the Kaiser and Imperial Germany and this like incredibly crazy system of balance of power in World War One, and then same thing within China in terms of the warring states and then the disintegration, the European, you know, how this is how they think of it, you know, which is like the century of humiliation and they had to have something like this. I think of it, I try to think of it within the context of that. I don't want to think of, I don't want to sound like an inevitabilist, but I think of it as, I like to think about systems, especially here in DC, that's why I got into politics, which is that you have to understand systems of power and the incentives within systems and the disincentives and the downside risk of what you're perp of what you're creating because it that is what leads and creates the behavior within that system i was just talking to my girlfriend about this yesterday it's kind of funny like I read these, I'm obsessed with these books um, by Robert Caro, the biographies of Lyndon Johnson. He's written like 5,000 pages so far and it's yeah. still not done. Yeah. Okay, so like these are <laughs> these are like books I base my life on. And look, these are Washington and the story of the post-New Deal era and forward. Not much has changed. Like the Senate is the, still the Senate. So many of the same problems with the Senate are still there. Um, in some cases, no, not not anymore. But for a while, some of the people who were there with Johnson are actually still. <laughs> um, one of them is the president of the United States. Just a joke. And you think about also same with the media relationship, right? Like there's this media. Really, they may have come and gone like the, the people who were in the media and who were cozy with the administration officials. I mean, they just recreated themselves. It's like this. It's like an ecosystem which doesn't change. And the, the that's why I'm like, oh, it's not that was a specific time. That's just D.C. Like that is 
DC because of the way the system is architected. It's pretty much been that way since like 1908, whenever like, you know, Teddy Roosevelt was dining with these journalists and he would yell at them and then he would go over to the society house. And like, in many ways, that's now instead of going to Henry Adams's house, like the people are congregating in Calorama, um, which is the richest neighborhood here at somebody else's house. Like it's the same thing. So you have to think about the system and then the incentives within that system about what the outcomes that they're producing if you actually want to think about how can I change this from the outside. That's also why it's very difficult to change because the system is designed in order to produce actually pretty specific outcomes that can only be changed in extraordinary times. Yeah, I mean, sometimes it's hard to to predict what kind of outcomes will result from the incentive, uh, the system that you create, right? Right. In the case, because especially when it's novel kind of situations, what Trump actually created a pretty novel situation. And a lot of the uh, things that we've seen in the 20th century were very novel systems where people were very optimistic about the the, <laughs> the outcomes, right? And then it turned out to not have the results that uh, they predicted. I. In terms of like things being unchanged for the past hundred years and so on, can you um, like Wikipedia style or maybe like in in a musical form, like uh, I'm only a bill, describe to me. Uh, <laughs> I I still sing that to my head sometimes. <laughs> I'm just a bill. <laughs> uh, I don't know what the rest of the song goes, but yeah. let's let's uh, let's leave that to people's imagination. Uh, how? How does this whole thing work? How does the U.S. political system work? The three branches is how do you think about the system we have now? If you mm -hmm. were to, to try to describe, if aliens showed up and asked you, like they didn't have time, so this is an elevator <laughs> thing. <laughs> elevator like, should pitch. we destroy you? Yeah, and and be, as you plead to avoid <laughs> destruction, well, how how would you uh, describe how this thing works? I would say we come together and we pick the people who make our laws. Then we pick the guy who executes those laws. And they together pick the people who determine whether they or the president is breaking the law at the most basic level. That's right. how I would describe it. Right? So the... So that's the people who make the laws are Congress. Mm -hmm. The executive is is charged with executing the law's as passed by Congress, the system, the branches of government. And the Supreme Court is picked by the president, confirmed by the Senate, which then decides whether you or other people are breaking the law in terms of interpretation of that law. That's basically it. Oh, and they they decide whether those laws are in they fall within the they fall within the restrictions and the want of the founders as expressed by the Constitution of the United States, which is a set of principles that we came together in 1787. I want to make sure I get this right. <laughs> um, 1787 and decided that we were going to live the rest of our lives barring a revolution and more. And we've made it 200 and something years in order on under that system. So there's a balance of power that's because you have multiple branches, there's a tension and a balance to it as designed by those original documents. Uh, what, which is the most dysfunctional of the branches? Which is your favorite? Like uh, in terms of talking about systems and like mm -hmm. what's the greatest of concern and what is the greatest source of benefit in, well, in your view? 
The presidency, obviously. Well, the presidency is my favorite to study, obviously, because it is the one where there's most subject to variable change in terms of the personality involved because of so much power imbued within the executive. The Senate is actually pretty much the same. <laughs> That's one of the things I love about reading about the Senate and histories of the Senate is you're like, oh yeah, there were always like assholes in the Senate who were doing their thing and and you know filibustering constantly based upon this or that. And then the pers- the personalities involved with the Senate haven't mattered as much since like pre-Civil War, right? Like pre-Civil War, you had like Henry Clay and then Daniel Webster and John C. Calhoun, who even in their own way, they represented like larger constituencies and they crafted these like compromises up until the outbreak of the Civil War, et cetera. But like post since then, you don't think about like the titans within the Senate. Mm -hmm. Most of that is because a lot of the stuff that they had power over has transferred over to the executive. So I'm most interested in really in like power like where it lies. It's actually pretty, you know, throughout American history, much more used to lie with Congress. Now it's obviously just so imbued within the executive that understanding executive power is, I think, the thing I'm probably most interested in here. Do you think at this point, the amount of power that the president has is corrupting to the to their ability to lead well? Is this, is, you know, uh, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Are we, uh, is there too much power in the in the presidency. Yeah, there definitely is. And part of the problem, and I one of the things I try to make come across to people is if you're the president, unless you have a hyper intentional view of how something must be different in government, your view doesn't matter. So for example, like if you were Trump, let's take Trump even, and even in with a pretty intentional view, he was like, I'm gonna end the war in Afghanistan and Iraq, right? And he came in And he gets these generals in. He's like, I want to end the war in Afghanistan and Iraq. Oh, and I want to withdraw these troops from Syria. Mm -hmm. And they're like, okay, well, give give us like six months. He's like, okay. And this is the thing about Trump. He doesn't realize that it's bullshit. So they're like, he's like, yeah, six months seems fine. Right. So then six months comes and he's like, he's like, so, and then he'll announce it. He'll be like, and we're getting out of Syria. It's great. And then the generals freak out. They're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. We don't have a plan for that. He's like, but you guys told me six months. He's like, I don't know. Now we need another six months in order to figure this thing out. Yeah. So that's how, and by that time, now you're midterms. So now what? Yeah. Now you got to run for re-election. So more what I mean by that is if you don't have a hyper-intentional view about how to change foreign policy, if you don't have a hyper-intentional view about how the Department of Commerce should do its job, they are just going to go on autopilot. So there's this is part of the problem. When you ask me about the presidency, it's not the presidency itself like the president himself, which has become too powerful. It's that we have less democratic checks on the people and the systems that are on autopilot. And I would say that basically since 2008, we have voted every single time to disrupt that system, except in the case of 2020 with Joe Biden. And there are a lot of different reasons around why that happened. Mm -hmm. And in every single one of those cases, Obama and Trump, they all failed in order to in order to radically disrupt that. And that just shows you how titanic the task is. And I'm using my language precisely because I don't want to be like deep state and all, but like obviously there's a deep state. Deep state, I guess, has conspiratorial exactly. uh, tinges to it. But so you're what you're saying is the true power currently lies with the autopilot. 
Yeah. AKA deep state. <laughs> well, but see, it's not, this is the thing too, I want to make it clear because I think people think conspiratorially that they're all coming together to intentionally do yes. something. No, 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 yeah. no. They are doing what they know, believe they are right, and don't have real democratic checks within that. And so now they have entire generations of cultures within each of these bureaucracies where they say, this is the way that we do things around here. Yeah. And that's the problem, which is that we have a culture of within many of these agencies and more. I think the best example for this would be during the Ukraine, you know, gate with Trump and all that with the impeachment. And I don't want I'm not talking about the politics here, but. The most revealing thing that happened was when the whistleblower guy, Alexander Vindman, was like, here you have the president departing from the policy of the United States. And I was like, well, um, let me educate you, Lieutenant Colonel. Um, the president of the United States makes American foreign policy. Yeah. But it was a very revealing comment because he and all the people within national security bureaucracy do think that. They're like, this is the yeah. policy of the United States. It's we, we have to do this. That's where things get screwy. Well, listen, for me personally, yeah. but also from an engineering perspective, I just talked to Jim Keller. It's just, this is the kind of bullshit that we all hate in uh, when you're trying to innovate and design new like products. Right. So like that's, the, that's what first principles thinking requires is like, we don't give a shit what was done before. The point is, what is the best way to do it? And it seems like uh, the current uh, the government, government in general, probably bureaucracies in general, are just really good at being lazy about never having those conversations. Mm -hmm. And just, it becomes this momentum thing that nobody has the difficult conversations. It's be become a game within a certain set of constraints and they never kind of do revolutionary tasks. But you did say that the presidency is power, mm -hmm. but you're saying that more power than the others, it, and but that power has to be coupled with like focused intentionality. Like you have to keep hammering the thing. If you want it done, it has to be done. I mean, and, and you gotta, you gotta, and this is the other part too, which is that it's not just that you have to get it done, you have to pick the 100 people who you can trust to pick 10 people each to actually do what you want. One of the most revealing quotes is from a guy named Tommy Corcoran. He was the top aide to FDR. This I'm getting from the Kara books too. And he said, what is a government? It's not just one guy or even 10 guys. Hell, it's a thousand guys. Yeah. And what FDR did is he masterfully picked the right people to execute his will through the federal agencies. Johnson was the same way. He played these people like a fiddle. He knew exactly who to pick. He knew the system and more. Part of the reason that outsiders who don't have a lot of experience in Washington almost always fail is they don't know who to pick. Or they pick people who say one thing to their face, and then when it comes time to carry out the president's policy in terms of the government, they just don't do it. And the president's too, uh, think about this. I think some, Rahm Emanuel said this. He was like, by the time it gets to the president's desk, nobody else can solve it. It's not easy. It's not like a yes or a no question. It's every single thing that hits the president's desk is incredibly hard to do. And Obama actually even said, and this was a very revealing quote about how, the, how he thinks about the presidency, which is, he's like, look, the presidency is like one of those super tankers. You know, he's like, I can come in and I can make it two degrees left and two degrees right. In a hundred years, two degrees left, 
that's a whole different trajectory. Yeah. Same thing on the right. And he's like, that ultimately is really all you can do. I quibble and disagree with that in terms of how he could have changed things in 2008, but there's a lot of truth to that statement. Okay, that's really fascinating. You make me yep. realize that um, actually both Obama and Trump are probably playing victim here to the system. You're making me think that maybe you can correct me that, because I'm thinking of like Elon Musk, mm -hmm. whose major success despite everything is is hiring the right people. Exactly. And like creating those thousands, that structure of a thousand people. So maybe a president has power in that if they were exceptionally good at hiring the right people. Personnel is policy, man. That's that's what it comes down to. But wouldn't yeah. you be able to steer the ship way more than two degrees if you hire the right people? So like, it's almost like Obama was not good at hiring the right people. Well, he hired all the Clinton people. Yeah. That's what happened. What happened with Trump? He hired all the Bush people. And then you Weird. just sit back and say, <laughs> oh, president can't, but that means you're just suck at hiring. Correct. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> look. I know it's funny. I'm giving you simultaneously the nationalist case against Trump yeah. and the progressive case against Obama. Yes. The progressive people are like, why the fuck are you hiring all these Clinton people in order to run the government and just recreate? Like, why are you hiring Larry Summers, who is one of the people who worked at all these banks and didn't believe the bailouts were going to be big enough? And then to come in in the worst economic crisis in modern American history. Yeah. That was 2008. And Summers actively lobbied against larger bailouts, which had huge implications for working class people and pretty much hollowed out America since. Okay, from Trump, same thing. You're like, I'm going to drain the swamp. And by doing that, I'm going to hire <laughs> Goldman Sachs's Gary Cohn yeah. and Steve Mnuchin and all these other absolute Bush clowns in order to run my White House. Well, yeah, no shit. The only thing that you accomplished in your four years in office is passing a massive tax cut for the rich and for corporations. I wonder how that happened. What role does money play in all of this? Is money a huge influence in politics, uh, super PACs, all that kind of stuff? Or is this is this more just kind of a narrative that we play with? Because from the outsider's perspective, it seems to have, that seems to be one of the fundamental problems with modern politics. So I was just having this conversation, Marshall and I, Marshall Kosloff, my co-host on The Realignment. And it's funny because if you do enough research, we actually live in the least corrupt age in American uh, campaign finance, as in it's never been more transparent. Mm -hmm. It's never been more up to the FE FEC uh, yeah, and all of that. If you go back and read not even 50 years ago, we're talking about Lyndon B. Johnson handing people like literally as a, he came up in his youth, paying people for votes, like the boss of the, you know, the person who like had all the Mexican votes, like the person who had, and he was like giving out briefcases. This is it, like within people's lifetimes who are alive in America. So that doesn't happen anymore. But I don't like to blame everything on money. Although I do think money is obviously a huge part of the problem. I actually look at it in terms of distribution, um, which is that how is money distributed within our, within our society? Because I but. firmly believe that politics this is going to get complicated, but I think politics is mostly downstream from culture and culture. Obviously, I'm using economics because there's obviously a huge interplay there. But like in terms of the equitable or lack of equitable distribution of money within our politics, what we're really pissed off about is we're like our politics only seems to work for the people who have money. Mm -hmm. I think that's largely true. Um, I think that the reason why things worked differently in the past is because our economy was structured in different ways. 
And there's a reason that our politics today are very analogous to the last Gilded Age, because we had very similar levels levels of ec- economic distribution and cultural problems too at the same time. I don't want to erase that because I actually think that's what's driving all of our politics right now. So that's interesting. So see, yeah. it was one. So in that sense, representative yeah. government is doing a pretty good job of representing yeah, it is. The, the state of culture and the people yeah. and so on. Yeah. Uh, can I ask you uh, in terms of um, you know the deep state and conspiracy mm-hmm. theories, there's a lot of talk about. So f- again, from an outsider's perspective, if I were just looking at Twitter, it seems that at least 90% of people in government are pedophiles. <laughs> that 90, 90 to 95%, I'm not sure what that number is. Yeah. <laughs> if I were to just look at Twitter, honestly, or YouTube, I would think most of the world is a pedophile. <laughs> I would almost feel like- right. And Ooh. if you if you don't fully believe that you're a pedophile, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I would start to wonder, like, wait, am I like yeah. what? Am I a pedophile too? Like, I'm either a communist or a pedophile or both, I guess. Uh, yeah, that's going to be clipped out. Thank you, yeah, internet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I look forward to your yeah. emails. Uh, but is there any kind of shadow conspiracy theories that uh, give you pause or? Um, so the flip side, the response to a lot of conspiracy theories, it's like, no, the reason this happened is because it's a combination of just incompetence. So where do you land on some of these uh, conspiracy theories? I think most conspiracy theories are wrong. Some are true, and those are spectacularly true. And if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, I And we don't know which ones. Though. I don't know which ones. That's the problem. I think, oh, well, I mean, look, man, I listened to your podcast. I think I was a huge non-believer in UFOs, and now I've probably never believed more in UFOs. Like, I, yeah. I, I believe in UFOs. Like, yeah. I'm very comfortable being like, not only do I believe in UFOs, like, I think we're probably being visited by an alien civilization. Yes. Like, and if you asked me that three years ago, I would be like, you're out of your fucking mind. Like, what are you talking about? Well, listen to David Fravor. That's yeah. all I have to say. That's it. Well, like, I, I have the sense yeah. that the government has information it hasn't revealed but it's not like they're i don't think they're holding there's like a, a green guy sitting right. there in a exactly. Room. exactly they just they have seen things they don't know what to do with so, so it's like they're confused like they're afraid yeah of, of revealing that they don't know that's yeah, what they i don't think know. it is right, they, right? it's revealing the yeah, exactly that <laughs> yeah. they don't know and then they're in the process there's a lot of fears tied up in that right. first looking incompetent in the public eye nobody wants mm-hmm. to be uh, look that way. And the other is like in revealing it, even though they don't know, maybe China will figure it out. Exactly. <laughs> so like, we don't want China to figure it out first. And so that all those kinds of things result in basically secrecy, then that damages the trust in institutions on one of the most fascinating aspects, like one of the most fascinating mysteries of humankind of is there life, intelligent life out there in the universe? So that's one of them. But there, there's other ones like uh, for me when I first came across actually Alex Jones mm-hmm. was uh, 9/11. Yeah, I remember like because uh, I was um, I was in Chicago. I was thinking like, oh shit, are they gonna hit Chicago too? <laughs> That's what everybody was thinking. <laughs> yeah, everybody, yeah. everybody was thinking like, right. what does this mean? At scale, what scale? What I mean, trying to interpret it. And I remember like looking for information desperately, like what what happened? Mm-hmm. What? And I remember not being satisfied with the quality of reporting and figuring out like rigorous, like here's exactly what happened. And so people like Alex Jones stepped up and others that said like, there's some shady shit going on. 
and yeah. it sure as hell look like there's shady shit going on. Yes. Uh, so like, and I still stand behind the fact that it seems like there's not, I there's not enough. In, like it wasn't a good job of being honest and transparent and all those kinds well, of things because it would implicate the saudis let's be honest right and see, <laughs> see that's that's my conspiracy theories i'm like yeah i think they covered up a lot of stuff because they wanted to cover up for the kingdom of saudi arabia like and then i mean that is a, that was a conspiracy theory not that long ago i think it's true i mean yeah. i think it's 100 percent true yeah so the, yeah, those like, kinds of conspiracy theories are interesting i mean there's other ones for me personally that touched uh so the institution that means a lot to me is the mit and uh, you know Jeffrey Epstein. Yeah, I want to hear a lot more. I want to hear about that. I, I talk about Epstein a lot, so I'm like, oh, you do, yeah. Okay. And and he, I was gonna say, in terms of conspiracy theory, that one changed my outlook because I was like, I was like, whoa, like you have this dude who convinced some of the most successful people on earth that he was like some money manager, and it looks like it was totally fake. Like Leon Black. I mean, this is one of the richest men on Wall Street, nine billion dollar net worth. Why is he giving him? Over a hundred million dollars between 2015 and 2019. Yeah. What's going on here? Lex Wexner, same thing. So yeah, I want to hear because you know people who met him. And the only yeah. person I know who met him was Eric Weinstein. I've, I've yeah. heard his, right. Oh boy. So <laughs> I, listen, I'm still in, and Eric is fascinating and like Eric is full on saying that. Uh, right. He was a Mossad or whatever. Yeah, there's a, there's a front for something, uh, something much, much bigger. Um, and there's uh whatever his name, Robert Maxwell, all the mm -hmm. all those stories. It, it, like you could dig deeper and deeper that Jeffrey's just like the tip of the iceberg. I just think he's an exceptionally charismatic, listen, this isn't speaking from confidence or mm -hmm. like deep understanding of the situation, but from my speaking with people, he just seems like, at least from the side of his influence and interaction with researchers, he just seems like somebody that was exceptionally charismatic uh, and actually took interest. He was unable to speak about interesting scientific things, but he took interest in them. Hmm. So he knew how to stroke the egos of a lot of powerful people, like well, like in, in different kinds of ways. I suppose I don't know about this because I don't have, like if a really, okay, this is, this is weird to say, but, hmm. I have an ability, okay, I think women are beautiful, I like women, but like if if like a supermodel came to me or something, like like I'm able to reason. It seems like some people yes. are not able to think clearly when there's like an attractive woman in the room. Mm -hmm. And I think that was one of the tools he used to manipulate people. Interesting. I don't know, listen, it's like the pedophile thing. Like, right. I, I don't know how many people are complete sex addicts, but like it seems like, like looking out into the world, like there's a well, like the Me Too movement have revealed that there's a lot of like weird, yeah, like uh, creepy people out there. I don't know, but I think it was just one of the many tools that he used uh, to uh, convince people and manipulate people, but not in some like um, evil way but more just really good at the art of conversation yeah. and just winning people over on his side. And then by building through that process, building a network of other really powerful people and not explicitly, but implicitly having done shady shit with powerful people, yeah. like building up a kind of 
implied power of like, like we did some shady shit together. So we're not like, you're going to help me out on this extra thing I need to right. do now. And that builds and builds and builds to where you're able to actually control, like have quite a lot of power without explicitly having like a strategy meeting. And I think a single person or, yeah, I think a single person can do that, or can start that ball rolling. And over time it becomes a group thing. Like, I don't know if uh, Jillian Maxwell was involved or others and, yeah, over time, that becomes almost like a really powerful organization that wasn't, that's not a front for something much deeper and bigger, but it's almost like, maybe it's because I love cellular automata, man. <laughs> a system that starts out as a simple thing with simple rules can create incredible complexity. Yes. And so I just think that uh, we're now looking in retrospect, it looks like an incredibly complex system that's operating in, but like, that's just because it's, you know, there could have been a lot of other Jeffrey Epstein's in, in my perspective that the simple thing just uh, was successful early on and builds and builds and builds and builds. And then there's uh, creepy shit that like a lot of aspects of the system helped it get bigger and bigger and more powerful and so on. So the final result is, I mean, listen, I, I have a pretty optimistic, I have a, I tend to see the good in people and so it's been heartbreaking to me in general just to see, you know, people I look up to not have the level of integrity I thought they would, or like the strength of character, mm -hmm. all those kinds of things. And it seems like you should be able to to see the bullshit that is Jeffrey Epstein, like when you meet him. Right. Uh, we're not talking about like Eric Weinstein, like one or two or three or five interactions, but like there's people that had like. <laughs> like years of relationship with him. Yeah. And I don't know. I, I'm not sure. Even what, after he was convicted. After that, he that's was convicted. The thing that guy always gets me. Yeah, there's there's stories. I mean, I don't need to sort of uh I honestly believe <sighs> Okay, here's the open question I have. I don't know how many creepy sexual people there are out there. Like I don't know if there is like like the people I know, the faculty and so on, mm -hmm. I don't know if they have like a kink that I'm just not aware of that was being leveraged. Because to me, it seems like if 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 people aren't, if not everybody's a pedophile, <laughs> <laughs> then it's just the art of conversation. That is just like the art of just like manipulating people by making them feel good about like the exciting stuff they're doing. Listen, man, academics are, pe people talk about money, I don't think academics care about money as much as people think. What they care about is like somebody, they, they, they want to be, uh, it's the same thing that Instagram models posting their butt pictures, is they want to be loved. They yeah. want attention. My and, parents are professors. Yeah, yeah. I get it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they, they, and uh, Jeffrey Epstein, like the money is another way to show attention. Right, it's a proxy. So, it's it my work matters and 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 he for some of he did that for some of the weirdest most brilliant people i don't want to sort of drop names but everybody knows them it's like people that are the most interesting academics is the one he cared about yeah like people are thinking about the most difficult questions of in all of science and all of engineering so 
those people are were kind of outcasts in academia a little bit because they're doing the weird shit. They're the weirdos. <laughs> and he cared about the weirdos and he gave them money. And that, uh, you know, I, that's, I don't know if there's something more nefarious than that. Uh, I, I hope not, but maybe I'm surprised. And in fact, uh, half the population of the world is pedophiles. No, I, I think it's what you were talking about, which is that it's the... It's the implication after the initial, right? Like the, you do some shady things together or you do something that you want out of the public eye and you're a public person. And look, we probably even experience this to a limited extent, right? You're like, ah, you know, like, I don't want to, I don't know. I almost lost my temper, you know, one time whenever a car hit me and I'm like, I can't freak out in public anymore. Like yeah. that, you know, like what if somebody takes a photo or something? Yeah. And so I think that there's an extent to that times a billion Literally, when you have a billion dollars or more and you take that all together and you stack it up on itself. I saw a story about like Bill Clinton, like Bill Clinton was with Epstein or with Ghislaine Maxwell in a private air terminal or something. And she had one of their like sex, you know, one of those girls who was underage, had her dressed up in a literal like pilot uniform. And she was underage in order to, you know, and she was dis being disguised for being older. And she was a masseuse, right? Because that was one of the uh, guises which they got in order to sexually traffic these women. And she was like, Bill was like complaining about his neck. And she's like, give Bill Clinton a, ma a massage, right? So now there's a photo of an underage girl giving a massage to the former president of the United States. I don't think he knew, right? But like, that looks bad. And so I, th this is kind of what we're getting at, which is that you're setting it all up and creating those preconditions. Or like Prince Andrew. Do I think Prince Andrew knew that Virginia Gouffray was underage i don't know probably knew she was pretty young which i think is you know skeevy enough where yeah. you're a fucking prince you probably know better yeah but i don't think he knew she was underage or maybe he did and if he did then he's even more of a piece of shit than i thought but if we when we when we look at these things the the stuff i'm more interested in is like what you were talking about i'm like bill gates how do you get the richest man of the world in your house yeah like under what guy Gates is like, he was talking about financing and all this. I'm like, you don't have access to money or bankers? Like, you're the richest man in the world. Like, yeah. You can call Goldman Sachs anytime you want on a hotline. Like, why do you need that's where I, that's where I start again to get more conspiratorial because I'm like, Bill, dude, you can you have the gold credit, right? <laughs> like you don't need Epstein to create some yeah. complicated financing structure. Or Leon Black, like what what is 2015, 2009, I mean, this is very recent stuff. Or, and this is the part that really got me, is I read the department, I think it's called the Department of Financial Services report around Deutsche Bank with Epstein. They knew he was a criminal. They solicited his business, explicitly knew that his business meant access to other high net worth individuals, consistently doled money out from his account for hush payments to women in Europe and prostitution rings. They knew all of this within the bank. It was elevated multiple times. Here was the other one. One of Epstein's associates was like, hey, how much money can we take out before we hit the you know, automatic sensor before you have to tell the IRS? And that question by, by their own standards is supposed to result in a notification to the feds and they never did it. And he was withdrawing like $2 million of cash in five years for tips. Yeah. To, I'm like, okay, I'm like something's going on here. Yeah. Like, yeah, you see what I'm saying? There's a lot of signs yeah, like, that make you think that there's a bigger thing at play than just the man. That there is some, it does look like a larger organization is using this front. 
Right. It's po- again, I don't know. I, I truly don't know. And I'm not willing to use the certainty, which I think a lot of people online are, to say like it wants 100%. Yes, the certainty you know? is always the problem. Because that, that's probably why I hesitate to touch conspiracy theories is because I'm allergic to certainty in yes. all forms. In politics, in any kind of discourse. And people are so sure it, in both directions, actually. It's, it's kind of hilarious. Uh, either they're sure that the conspiracy theory, a particular whatever the conspiracy theory is, is false. Like they almost dismiss it like, uh, like they, they don't even want to talk about it. It's like the people, like the way they dismiss that the earth is flat. Yes. Most scientists are like, they don't even want to like hear what the, what the flat earthers are saying. <laughs> they don't have a, like zero patience for it, which is like, uh, maybe in that case, yeah, is deserved. But everything else, you really like have empathy. Like consider the fu- you have. Okay, this is weird to say, but I feel like you have to consider that the Earth might be flat for like one minute. Like well, you have to be empathetic. You have to be open minded. I don't see a lot of that through our cultural tastemakers and more. And that's that really is what concerns me the most because it's just another manifestation of all of our problems is that we have this completely bifurcating economy bifurcating culture literally in terms of we have the middle of the country and then we have the coast and in terms of the population it's almost 50 50 and with you know increasing mega cities and urban culture like urban monoculture of la new york and chicago and dc and boston and austin relative to how an entire other group of americans live their lives or even the people within them who aren't rich and upwardly mobile how they live their lives is just completely separating and all of our language and communication in mass media and more is to the top and then everybody else is forgotten do you think when you go when you dig to the core there is a big there's a big gap between left and right is there is that division that that's perceived currently real or are most people center left and center right it's so interesting because that's such a loaded term center left what does that mean like to you i think the way you're thinking of it is i'm not like a well even this like i'm not a radical socialist but i'm (laughs) uh i'm marginally left on cultural issues and economic issues. This is how we've traditionally understood things. Yeah. Um, and then when when in popular discourse, like center-right, like what does it mean to be center-right? Like I am marginally right on social, on conserv- on social issues and marginally right on economic issues. Yeah. But that's just not politics. Like if you look at survey data, for example, like uh, stimulus checks, people who are against stimulus checks are conservative, right? Well, 80% of the population is for a stimulus check. So that means a sizable number of Republicans are for stimulus checks. Same thing happens on like a wealth tax. Um, The same thing happens on, okay, Florida voted for Trump 3.1%, more than Barack Obama 2008. On the same day, passes a $15 minimum wage at 67%. So what's going on? So that's why- What is going on? Well, that's you know, what my so entire career. <laughs> no, but but it seems yeah. like uh, so th- that's yeah. that's fascinating. Yeah. The conversation is different than the policies. Well, it's different than reality. That's what right. I would say. Which is that the way we have to understand American politics today—it didn't always used to be this way—is it's almost entirely along 
basic, I, I would say the main divider is because e- even when you talk about class, this misses it in terms of socioeconomics, it's around culture, which is that it's basically if you went to a four year degree granting institution, you are part of one culture. If you didn't, you're part of another. I don't want to erase the 20% or whatever of people who did go to a college degree who are Republicans or vice versa, et cetera. But I'm saying on average, in terms of the median way that you feel, we're basically bifurcating along those lines. And because people get upset, be like, oh, well, you know, there are rich people who vote for Trump. And I'm like, yeah, but you know, you know who they are? They're like plumbers or something. Like they're, they're people who make $100,000 a year but they didn't go to a four-year college degree and they might live who are in a place which is not an urban metro area. And then at the same time, you have like a Vox writer who makes like 30 grand, but they have a lot more cultural power than like the plumber. So you have to think about where exactly that line is. And I think in general, that's the way that we're trending. So that's why when I say like, what's going on? Are we divided? Yeah, like, but it's not left and right. I mean, like, and that's why I hate these labels. So it's more, it's, like, it's more just red and blue, like teams. They're arbitrary teams. Yeah. Are they? So how arbitrary are these teams? I guess is another completely th- arbitrary. Right? So yeah. well, you kind of imply yeah. that there's. I don't know if yeah. you're sort of in post analyzing yeah. the patterns because it seems like there's a network effects of like you just pick the team red or blue, mm-hmm. and it might have to do with college. It might have to do with all those things, but like. It it seems like it's more about uh, just the people around you. Correct. So less than whether you went to college or not. I mean, it's almost like seems like it's it's almost like uh, weird, yeah, yeah, right. like uh, network effects that are hard. There's certain strong patterns that you're identifying, but I don't know. It's sad to think that it might be just teams that have nothing to do with what you actually believe. <laughs> well, it and, is, Lex. I look. I mean, I don't want to believe that, but the data points me to this, which especially 2020, I'm one of the people, chief among them, I will own up to it here. I was totally wrong about why Trump was elected in 2016. I believed, and based a lot of my public commentary belief on this, Trump was elected because of a rejection of Hillary Clinton neoliberalism on the back of a pro-worker message, which was anti-immigration, it was its pillar, but alongside of it was a rejection of free trade with China and generally of the political correctness and globalism, which has been come in through the uniparty and same thing here with the military industrial complex and endless war. He rejected all of that. What's, wait, what's wrong with that prediction? It's wrong, man. And the reason I know this sounds is right. that <laughs> it sounds right. I wish it w- I honestly wish it was true. But here's the truth. Trump actually governed largely as a neoliberal Republican who was meaner online and who departed from orthodoxy in some very important ways. Don't get me wrong. I will always support the trade war with China. I will always support not expanding the wars in Afghanistan and in Iraq. I will support him moving the Overton window on a million different things and revealing once and for all that GOP voters don't care about economic orthodoxy necessarily. But here's what they do care about. Trump got more votes in 2020 than he did in 2016, despite not delivering largely 
largely for all the Trump people out there on that agenda. He wasn't more pro-union, but he won more union votes. He wasn't necessarily more pro-worker, but he actually won more votes in Ohio than he did in, tw- in 2016. And he won more Hispanic votes than despite being, you know, all the immigration agenda, uh, rhetoric, et cetera. Here's why. It's about the culture, which is that the culture war is so hot that negative partisanship is at such high levels all of the vote is geared upon what the other guy might do in office. And there's a poll actually just came out by Echelon Insights. Crystal and I were talking about it on Rising. The number one concern amongst Democratic voters is Trump voters. Number one concern. Mm. Not issues not, like Trump voters. And number two is white supremacy. And so like, which is basically code for Trump voters. And is the same then, true for the other side? Well, so on the right, number one concern is illegal immigration. Um, oh. And number, I think, three or four, whatever, is Antifa, which is code for well, it's nice. At least on the right, it's a policy kind well, of thing. Well, yeah, it's funny. Ben, <laughs> I saw Ben Shapiro was talking about this. But the reason why I would functionally say it's the same is because, the I mean, you can believe whether it's true or not. I think it actually largely is true. But like the a lot of GOP vo- voters feel like a lot of illegal immigration is code for like people who are coming in who are going to be legalized and are going to go vote Democrat. Like I can I can just explain it from there point of view. So like, what does that actually mean? Each other, like yeah. and each other, which is that the number one concern is the other person. So negative partisanship has never been higher. And I think people who had my thesis in terms of why Trump was elected in 2016, you have to grapple with this. Like, how did he win 10 million more votes? He came 44,000 votes away from winning the presidency across three states. Like, I don't, none of our popular discourse reflects that very stark reality. And I think so much of it is people really hate liberals. Like they just really hate them. And I was driving through rural Nevada before the election and I was like literally in the middle of nowhere. And there was this massive sign this guy had out in front of his house and it just said, Trump, colon, fuck your feelings. And I was like, that's it. That is why people voted for Trump. And I don't want to denigrate it because- they truly feel they have no cultural power in America except to raise the middle finger to the elite class by pressing the button for Trump. I get that. That's actually a totally rational way to vote. It's not the way I wish, wish we did vote, but like, you know, that's not my place to say. So yeah. this is interesting. If yeah. you could just psychoanalyze, I'm, again, I'm probably naive about this, but I'm really bothered by the hatred of liberals mm-hmm. it's uh it's a, this amorphous monster that's mocked it's like the shapiro uh liberal tears and i'm also really bothered by uh probably more of my colleagues and friends the hatred of trump yeah uh the the, the trump and and white supremacist so apparently 70 there's 70 million white supremacists 75 million, sorry. There's millions yeah. <laughs> of white supremacists. And uh, apparently whatever liberal is, I mean, liber- you know, you literally liberal has become equivalent to white supremacist in the power of negativity it arouses. I don't even know what those, I mean, honestly, I just don't, even, they've become swears essentially. Uh, is that, I mean, how do we get out of this? Because that, uh, that's why I just don't even say anything about politics online because it's like 
Really? Like you, you can't. You, if, well, here's what happens. Anything you say that's like thoughtful, like hmm, I wonder the like, uh, immigration, something. Right. Like so I wonder, like why you know uh, we have these many, we allow these many immigrants in, or like some version of the like thinking through these difficult policies and so on. That they immediately try to find like a single word in something you say that can put you in a bin of liberal or white supremacist. And then hammer you to death <laughs> by saying you're one of the two, and then everybody just piles on happily that we finally nailed this white supremacist or liberal. And that is this some kind of weird like feature of online communication that we've just stumbled upon? Is there a way, or is it possible to argue that this is like a feature, not a bug? Like this is a a good thing? <laughs> yeah. Well. Look, I just think it's a reflection of who we are. People like to blame social media. I think we're just incredibly divided right now. I think we've been divided like this for the last 20 years. And I think that the reason I focus almost 99% of my public commentary on economics is because you asked an important question at the top. How do we fix this? Yeah. Well, what did I say about the stimulus checks? Stimulus checks have 80% approval rating. So that's the type of thing. If I was Joe Biden and I wanted to actually heal this country, that's the very first thing I would have done when I came into office. Same thing on uh, when you look at anything that's going to increase wages. Um, I, I said on the show, I was like, look, I think Joe Biden will have an 80% approval rating if he does two things. If he gives every American a $2,000 stimulus check and gives everybody who wants a vaccine a vaccine. That's it. It's pretty simple. Because here's the thing. I don't really like Greg Abbott that much. We have like very different politics. I'm from Texas, but my parents got vaccinated really quickly. That means something to me. I'm like, listen, I don't really care about a lot of the other stuff. He got my family vaccinated like that. Well, I will forever remember that. And that's how we will remember the checks. This is a part of a reason why Trump almost won the election and why if the Republicans had been smart enough to give him a 2000, another round of checks, 100% would have won, which is that people were like, look, I don't really like Trump, but I got a check with his name on it. And that meant something to me and my family. I'm not saying for all the libertarians out there that you should go and like endlessly spend money and buy votes. Mm -hmm. What I am saying is lean into the majoritarian positions without adding your culture war bullshit on top of it. Yeah. So for example, What's the number one concern that AOC says after the first round of checks got out? Oh, the checks didn't go to Ill illegal immigrants. I'm like, are you out of your fucking mind? Like, this is the most popular policy America has probably done in 50 years, you know, since like Medicare. And you're you go inserting ruin it. You're wow. ruining it. Yeah. And then on the right is the same thing, which is that they'll be like, these checks are going to like, you know, low level, blah, blah, you know, people who are lazy and don't work. I'm like, oh, there you go. You know, like you're just playing a caricature mm -hmm. of what you are. Like if you lean into those issues and you got to do it clean, this is the, this is what everybody hates about D.C., which is that Biden right now is doing the fourteen hundred dollar checks but he's looping it in with his COVID relief bill and all that. That's his prerogative. That's the Democrats' prerogative. They won the election. That's fine. But I'll tell you what I would have done if I was him. I would have come in and I would have said there's five United States senators who are on the record, Republicans, who say they'll vote for a $2,000 check. And I would put that on the floor of the United States Senate on my you know first or so, the first day possible. Mm -hmm. And I would have passed it. And I would have forced those Republican senators to live up to that 
vote for this bill, Mm -hmm. come to the Oval Office for a signing so that the very first thing of my presidency was to say, I'm giving you all this relief check. This night long national nightmare is over. Take this money. Do with it what you need. We've all suffered together. The thing about Biden is he has a portrait of FDR in his in the Oval, which kind of bothers me because he thinks of himself as an FDR like figure. Mm-hmm. But this is you have to understand the majesty of FDR. We're talking about a person who passed a piece of legislation five days after he became president, and he passed 15 transformative pieces of legislation in the first 100 days. We're on day like 34, 35, and nothing has passed. The reconciliation bill will eventually become law, but it'll become law with no Republican votes. And again, that's fine, If but it's not fulfilling that legacy and the urgency of the action. And the mandate, which I believe that history has handed, it handed it to Trump and he fucked it up, right? He totally screwed it up. He could have remade America and made us into the greatest country ever coming out on the other side of this. He decided not to do that. I think Biden was again handed that like a scepter almost. It's like all you have to do, all America wants is for you to raise it up high, but he's keeping it within the realm of traditional politics. I think it's a huge mistake. Why? So this is, everything you're saying is Perfect sense. Like take, yeah. Okay. It's like, it, it's like again, if the aliens showed up, yeah. it's like the obvious <laughs> thing to do is like, yeah. what's the popular thing? Like eighty percent of Americans support this. Like do that clean. Uh, also do it like with like grace, where you're able to bring people together, not like in a political way, but yeah. like obvious, like obvious common sense way. Like uh, just people, the Republicans and Democrats just bring them together on a policy and like bold, just hammer it mm-hmm. without the dirt, without the mess, whatever, try to compromise. Just the yell with, have a good Twitter account, like loud, very clear. We're gonna give a $2,000 stimulus check. Anyone who wants a vaccine gets a vaccine at scale, what make, America, let's make America great again by (laughs) manufacturing. Like we are manufacturing most of the world's vaccine because we're bad motherfuckers. Yeah. And and what without maybe uh with with more eloquence than that and and just do that. Why haven't we seen that for many for several presidencies? Because of coalitional politics and they owe something to somebody else. For example, Biden has got a lot of the Democratic constituency he has to satisfy within this bill. So there's going to be a lot of shit that goes in there, state and local aid, um, all this stuff. Again, I'm not even saying this is bad, but he's like, his theory is, and this isn't wrong, is like, we're going to take the really popular stuff and use it as cover for the more downwardly less popular. And so- the Dems could face the accusation. The people who are on this side, this is their pushback to me. They're like, why would we give away the most popular thing in the bill and then we would never be able to pass state and local aid, right? Why would we do that? And the Republicans do the same thing, right? Like Mitch McConnell, because he's a fucking idiot, decided to say, we're going to pair these $2,000 stimulus checks with like Section 230 repeal. And it was like, oh, it's obviously dead, right? Like it's not going to happen together. That's largely why I believe Trump lost the election and why those races down in Georgia went the way that they did. Obviously, Trump had something to do with it. But the reason why is they have longstanding things that they've wanted to get done. And in the words of Rahm Emanuel, never let a good crisis go to waste and try and get as much as you possibly can done within a single bill. My counter 
would be this. Things have worked this way for too long, which is that the reconciliation bill is almost certainly going to be the only large signature uh, legislative accomplishment of the Biden presidency. That's just how American politics works. Maybe he gets one more, maybe one. Hmm. He gets a second reconciliation bill. Then you're running for the midterms. It's over. I believe that by trying to change the paradigm of our politics, leaning into exactly what I'm talking here, you could possibly transcend that to a new one. And I'm not naive. I think people respond to political pressures. And the way that we found this out was David Perdue, who is just a total corporate, you know, dollar George, dollar general CEO guy. He was against the original $1,200 stimulus checks. But then Trump came out, who's the single most popular figure in the Republican Party. He's like, I want $2,000 stimulus checks. And all of a sudden, Purdue running in Georgia is like, yeah, I'm with President Trump. I want a $2,000 stimulus check. That was, if you're an astute observer of politics, to say, you can see there that you can force people to do the right thing because it's the popular thing. And that if it's clean, if you don't give them any other excuse, they have to do it. So this this is what... We've been gaslit into our culture war framework of politics, and the reason it feels so broken and awful is because it is, but there is a way out. It's just that nobody wants to be, it's a game of chicken, right? Because maybe it is true. Maybe we would never be able to get your other Democratic priorities or your Republican priorities. But I think that the country understands that this is fucking terrible (laughs) and would be willing to support somebody who does it differently. There's just a lot of disincentives to not stay without, there's a lot of incentives to not stray from the traditional path. Yeah. Is it also possible that the A students are not participating? Like we drove (laughs) all the the superstars away from politics. Mm -hmm. So like you just had this argument before. I mean, everything you're saying sort of uh, rings true. Like this is the obvious thing to do. As a student of history, you can almost like tell, like if you look at great people in history, this is what great leaders in history, this is what they did. It's like uh, clean, bold action. And sometimes facing crisis, but we're facing a crisis. No, right we're now. in a crisis. We've exactly. been, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so why don't we, uh, uh, why don't we see those leaders step up? That's, I mean, you say that's kind of like, it, it makes sense. There's a lot of different interests at play. Mm-hmm. You don't want to risk too many things, so on and so forth. But that's what like, that sounds like the C students. <laughs> I don't think it's that. I think it's that the pipeline of politician creation is just totally broken from beginning that's to it. end. So it's not that A students don't want to be uh, politicians. It's basically the way that our current primary system is constructed is what is the greatest threat to you as a member of Congress? It's not losing your reelection. It's losing your primary, right? So that means, especially in a safe district, you're most concerned about being hit if you're a Republican from the right and if you're a Democrat from the left for not being a good enough one. Mm -hmm. That's actually what stops people more heterodox people in particular from winning primaries because the people who vote in our primaries are the party faithful. That's how you get the production. The production, it's important to understand the production pipeline, which is that, all right, I'm from Texas, so that's what I know best. So it's like, if you think in Texas, if you're a more heterodox like state legislature or something who's works with the left on this and does that, 
you're going to get your ass beat in a Republican primary because they're going to be like, he worked with the left to do this, blah, blah, take it out of context and you're screwed. Mm -hmm. And then that means you never ascend up the next level of the ladder and then so on and so forth all the way. But I do think Trump changed everything. This is why I have some hope, which is that he showed me that all the people I listened to were totally wrong about mm -hmm. politics. And that's the most valuable lesson you could ever teach yeah. me, which was, I was like, wait, I don't have to listen to these people. I'm like, they don't know anything, actually. <laughs> you, you know? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's powerful, man. Yeah. I'm like, he did it. That's exceptionally powerful. This guy. Even if yeah. he didn't do anything with it. It doesn't matter, right. He showed that it's possible. Exactly. And that that means uh, that means a lot. That means, you're absolutely right. There's yeah. young people right now that kind of look, turn around and like, huh. You're like, wait, I don't have to comb my hair a certain way yeah. and go to law school yeah. and be an asshole who everybody knows is an asshole yeah. and, and then get elected to state legislature. I mean, look, who's the number one person in the New York prime or New York City uh, primary right now? Andrew Yang. He's polling higher than everybody else in the race. I, look, maybe the polls are totally fucked and maybe he'll lose because of ranked choice voting and all that. But I consider Andrew, I mean, I know him a little bit and I've you know, followed his candidacy from the very beginning. I consider him an inspiration. He's the new generation of politics. Like if I see who's going to be president 20 years from now, it's going to be, I'm not saying it's going to be Andrew Yang. I think it's going to be somebody like Andrew Yang outside the political system who talks in a totally different way, right? Just a completely... One of my favorite things that he said on the debate stage, he's like, look at us. We're all wearing makeup. It's crazy. You know, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And he like he like brought that that he brought that. And he's writing like, yeah, why are they're all wearing makeup? He probably like, arguably hasn't gone far enough almost. Yes. Because, uh, but he showed that it's possible. And then you, you see other like AOC is a good example of somebody, okay. at least in my opinion, is doing the same kind of thing, but going too far. In, in like, well, I don't know. She's doing the Trump thing, but on the other side. So I don't know. I, it's, what's too far? Don't Who knows? take a normative judgment of it. Yeah, I will tell you the future of politics. Looks appreciate like the AOC. art of it, <laughs> right? No, I do. Look, I don't. I'm not a big AOC fan, but she's a genius, media genius, once in a generation talent. The way that she uses social media, Instagram, and everybody on the right is like trying to copy her. Like Matt Gates, like I want to be the conservative AOC. I'm like, it's just not going to happen. Like it, it, you just don't have it. Like what she has, it's like, it's electric. And Trump had that. Like I've been to a Trump rally, like to cover as a journalist, there's nothing like it in, in America. Well, and Yang, Yang is similar. It's the same way where you're like, there is something going on here, which is just like, I've been to an Obama rally. I've been to a Clinton rally. I've been to um, several normal politics. Yeah, it's fine, you know. Yeah. With Trump and with Yang, it was it's another world. Yeah, it's another yeah. world. Yang, Yang. Yeah. There's there's, a, there's probably thousands of people listening right now who are just like doing a <laughs> yeah. slow clap. <laughs> yes, I know, I know. Uh, Yang, Gang, yeah. uh, forever. Okay, but uh, yeah, my, I mean, my worst fear. I I prefer Yang, uh, uh, Andrew Yang, kind of free. Uh, improvisational idea exchange, all that versus AOC, who I think no matter what she stands for is a, a drama machine, creates dramas just like Trump does. I would say my worst fear would be in 2024, is AOC old enough? It'd be AOC versus Trump. I don't think she's old enough. I think you'd have to be, oh, I think she's 30. So she needs five more years. So probably not. Yeah. Okay. But that kind of, yeah. that that's, or Trump Jr. Well, AOC probably wouldn't win a Democratic primary. So, I mean, look, Joe Biden is, you know. 
So they that's what, pretty much showed that. that yeah. That's exactly what you're saying. Is yeah. This process grooms you over time. It's you see the same thing in academia actually, which is very interesting. Is the the process of getting tenure? There's this. It's like you're being taught without explicitly being taught. Yes to behave in the way that everybody's behaved before. I've heard this, it was funny, I've had a few conversations that um, were deeply disappointing, which, which, are, which involved statements like, this is what's good for your career. Yes. This kind of conversation, almost like mentor to mentee conversation, where it's, you know, it's like, there's a grooming process in the same way, I guess you're saying the primary process mm -hmm. does the same kind of thing. So. I mean, that's what people have talked about with Andrew Yang. It was, uh, it was, he was being suppressed by a bunch of different forces, the mainstream media and all. Just the democratic, just that whole process didn't, didn't like the, the honesty that he was showing, right? For now. But here's my question to you. People got to see, look, Jordan Peterson is one of the most famous people in America, right? Like you have a massive podcast. You're more famous than half the, 99% of the people at MIT. So like from that perspective, everything has changed. And somewhere out there, there's a student who's taking notice. Yeah. And I've noticed that with my own career, everybody thought I was crazy for doing this show with Crystal, The Hill. They thought it was nuts. They're like, what are you doing? You're a White House correspondent. You've got a job forever. The other job offer I had was being a White House correspondent. And people thought I was nuts for not just sticking there and you know aging out within Washington, pining for uh, appearances on Fox News and CNN and MSNBC. But I hated it. I just hated doing it. And I did not want to be a company man, like a Washington man, who's one of those guys who like brags to his friends about how many times he's been on Fox or whatever, mostly because I just have a rebellious streak and I hate being at the subject of other people. I created something new, which a lot of people watch to get their news. And I noticed that younger people who are almost all my audience, they don't really look up to any of the people yeah. in traditional, right? They don't. They don't go and are, they're not coming up and being like, how do I be like Jim Acosta? You know, they're like, how, they're like, hey, how did you do what you do? And the way you did it is by bucking the system. Yeah. So I think that we are at a total split point. And look, there will always be a path for people. Cause like, I don't want people to overlearn this lesson. I have people who are like, I'm not going to go to college. And I'm like, well, just wait. <laughs> yeah. Like, I'm like, just <laughs> I'm starting. Yeah, yeah. Like, stop. Just like, yeah. just wait, hold on a second. But. There will always be a path for the institutional. There will, that will always be there for you. But now there's something else. Now there's another game in town. And that's more appealing to millions and millions and millions and millions of people who feel unserved by the corporate media, CNN, and these people, possibly who feel unserved um, in the, you know, the faculty. Like yeah. if you are an up and comer who wants to teach as many young people as possible, I think you should be on YouTube. Right. Like, look at the Khan Academy guy. That guy created a huge business. So I just think we can be cynical and like upset about what that system is, but we should also have hope. Like, I have a lot of hope for what can be in the future. Yeah. There's a, there's a guy people should check out. So my, my story is a little bit different because I basically uh, stepped aside for, for, with the dream of being an entrepreneur earlier in the pipeline than like a like a legitimate like senior faculty would. There's an example somebody people should check out, Andrew Huberman from Stanford, who's a neuroscientist, who's as world-class as it gets in terms of like tenure faculty, just a really 
world-class researcher and now he's doing YouTube. And yeah, do, I see him be, on Instagram. Yeah. And he's right. so he switched. So he not just yeah. does Instagram, he now has a podcast and he's doing he's changing the nature of like I believe that Andrew might be the future of Stanford. And for a lot, it's funny, like he's basically Joe Rogan is an inspiration to Andrew. Mm-hmm. And and to me as well, and so those ripple effects. And Andrew is an inspiration, probably just like you're saying to these young, like twenty five year olds who are soon to become faculty. If we're just talking about academia, and the same is probably happening with with government. Is funny enough, Trump probably is inspiring a huge number of people who are saying, "Wait a minute, I don't have to play by the rules." Exactly, and uh, I have to. I can think outside the box here and you're right and the institutions we're seeing are just probably lagging behind so the optimistic view is the future <laughs> uh, is going to be full of exciting new ideas so andrew yang is just kind of the beginning of this he's whole tip thing. of the iceberg and i and i hope that iceberg doesn't it's not this influencer one of the things that really <laughs> bothers me yeah i've gotten a chance not i should be careful here i don't want to i i love everybody but it, you know, these people who talk about like, you know, how to make your first million or how to succeed. And and they're so, I mean, yeah, that, that makes me a little bit cynical about, uh, I'm worried that the people that win the game of politics will be ones that want to win the game of politics. They already <laughs> As, are, man. Yeah. And, and like we mentioned AOC, mm-hmm. it's, I hope they optimize for the 80% populist thing, right? <laughs> like they optimize for that badass thing, the history will remember you as the great man or woman that did this thing versus how do I maximize engagement today and keep growing those numbers? The, the influencers are so, I'm so allergic to this, man. Mm-hmm. They keep saying how many followers they have on the different accounts. And it's like, I, I, I don't, think they understand maybe i don't understand i don't really care i think it has destructive psychological effects one like thinking about the number like getting excited your number went from 100 to 101 and being like and today went out to 105 whoa that's a big jump that maybe like thinking in this way like i wonder what i did i'll do that again in this way, one, it's uh, it creates anxiety and those psychological effects, whatever. The the more important thing is it prevents you from truly thinking boldly in the long arc of history, in uh, creatively yes. thinking outside the box, doing huge actions. 100%. And I actually, op- my optimism is in the sense that that kind of action will beat out all the influencers. Well, I don't know, Lex. This is where <laughs> my cynicism comes in. So. There's a guy, Madison Cawthorn, the youngest member of Congress, um, and he, I I don't want to say got caught, but there was like an email where he was like, my staff is only oriented around comms. Like he was basically saying, he got basically caught saying like, my staff is only centered on communications. And that's the right play. If you do want to get the benefits of our current electoral, political, and engagement system, which is that. What's the best way to be known within the right as a as a right wing politician? It's to be a culture warrior, go on Ben Shapiro's podcast, be one of the people on Fox News, go on Sean Hannity's show, go on Tucker's show and all of that because you become a mini celebrity within that world. 
left unsaid is that that world is increasingly shrinking portion of the American population, and they barely they can't even win a popular vote election, um, let alone barely win eke out an electoral college victory in 2016. Well, but the incentives are all aligned within that. And it's the same thing really on the left. But you're right, which is that ultimate. And look, this is this is why geniuses are geniuses, because they buck the short term incentives. They focus on the long term. They bet big and they usually fail. But then when they get big, they they uh, succeed spectacularly. Yeah. The people I know who have done this the best are like a lot of the crypto folks that I've spoken to. Like some of the stuff they say, I'm like, I don't know if that's going to happen. But look, they're like billionaires, right? Yeah. You know, so, <laughs> yeah. And you're like, so they were right. So it's it, uh, the way I've heard it expressed is you can be wrong a lot, but when you're right, you get right big. Yeah. And I mean, I've seen this in Elon Musk's career. I mean, he took spectacular risk, like spectacular risk and just doubled down, doubled down, doubled down, doubled down, doubled down. And you can kind of tell to him, I mean, you know him better than I do, but like from my observation, I don't think the money matters no. as, right? I just, I, like when I see him, I'm like, I don't, it's, nobody works as hard as you do and builds the way that you build if it's just about the money. It's just, it just doesn't happen. Like nobody wills, SpaceX into existence just for the money. Like, it's not worth it, frankly, right? Like, he probably destroyed years of his life and, like, mental sanity. Money or attention or fame, none of that. Yeah. That's, that's not the primary priority. Well, that's what's so appealing to me, to me in particular, about him, just, like, and how he built. Like, I read a biography of him and just, like, the way that he constructed his life and, like, is able to hyper-focus in meeting after meeting and drill down and also hire all of the right people who execute each one of his tasks discreetly to his perfection is amazing. Like that's actually the mark of a good leader. But I mean, if you think about his career, the reason he's a renegade is because probably he was told to like put it in an index fund or whatever, like yeah. whenever he made his like 29 million and from PayPal, I don't know how much he made and then just go along that one. He's like, no. And so he, you know, succeeds spectacularly. So you have to have somebody who's willing to come in and buck that system. So for 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 now, I think our politics are generally frozen. I think that that model is going to be most generally appealing to the mean person. But somebody will come along and will change everything. Yeah, I'm just surprised there's not more of them. Uh, yeah. On, on that topic, yeah. uh, it's now 20, what is it, 21? Yes. Let's, let's make some predictions you can be wrong about. Good. <laughs> <laughs> what major political people are you thinking will run in 2024, including Trump, junior or senior, mm -hmm. or Ivanka, I don't know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> any Trump, <laughs> Trump. Uh, and uh, who do you think wins? I think Joe Biden will run again in 2024. And I think he will run against someone with the last name Trump. I do not know whether that is Trump or Trump Jr. Uh, but I think one of those people will probably be the GOP nominee in 2024. Who was it? Some prominent political figure, was it Romney? Somebody like that mm -hmm. said that Trump will win the primary if he runs again. Of course, that, that's not even a question. Trump is the single most popular figure in the Republican party by orders of magnitude. Still. Oh, I mean, probably more, honestly. There was a, actually, I can tell you because I saw the data, which is that pre-January 6th, it was like 54% of Republicans wanted him to run again. Then it went down eight points after January 6th, two days later. And then after impeachment, it went right back up to 54%. So the exact same number mm -hmm. is in February 
at post impeachment vote as it was after November. Now, look, yeah, again, surveys, bullshit, et cetera. But like, that's all the data we have. That's what I can point you to. If Trump runs, he will be the nominee and he will be he will be the 2024 nominee. I just don't know if he wants to. It, it, it really depends. Like, do you, do you think he wins after the Trump vaccine heals all of us? Do you think Trump wins? It depends on how popular culture functions over the next four years. And I can tell you that they are because I don't think Biden has that much to do with it. Because, again, <laughs> Trump is not a manifestation of an affirmative policy action. Yeah. It is a defensive bulwark wall against cultural liberalism uh, at its best. So it's like this is why it doesn't matter what Biden does. If there are more riots, if there is a more sense of persecution amongst people who are more lean towards conservative or like, hey, I don't know about that. That's crazy. Then he very well could win. Let's okay. Let's say Joe Biden doesn't run and they put up like Kamala Harris. I think he would. I think he would beat her. And I, I don't think there's a question that Trump would beat Kamala Harris in 2024. And you don't think anybody else, I don't know how the the process works. You don't think anybody else on the Democratic side can uh, take the- Well, how could you run against the sitting vice president? You know, it's like if Joe Biden, Joe Biden has a 98% approval rating in the Democratic Party. If he says she is my heir, I think enough people will listen to him in a competitive primary or a non-competitive primary. And then there's all these things about how primary systems themselves are rigged. The DNC could make it known that they'll blacklist anybody who does try and primary Kamala Harris. Um, and look, I mean, progressives aren't necessarily all that popular amongst actual Democrats. Like we found that out um, yeah. during the election. There's an entire constituency which loves Joe Biden and Joe Biden level politics. And so if he tells them to vote for Kamala, I think I think she would probably get it. But again, it's, there's a lot of game theory obviously happening. But see, I yeah. think you're talking about everything you're saying is correct mm -hmm. about mediocre candidates. It feels like if there's somebody like a really strong, I don't want to use this term incorrectly, but populist, somebody mm -hmm. that speaks to the the 80% that's is able to provide bold, eloquently described solutions that are popular, I think that breaks through all of this nonsense. How? How do they break through the primary system? Because the problem is the primary system is not populism. It's primary. So it's like- But you don't think they can tweet their way to- Well, you have to be willing to win a GOP primary. You basically have to be at- Whoever wins the GOP primary, in my opinion, will be the person most hated by the left. One of the people, things that people forget is, you know who came in second to Trump? Ted Cruz. And the reason why is because Ted Cruz was the second most hated guy by liberals in America, second to Trump. They have nothing in policy in common. But don't you yeah. think this kind of brilliantly yeah. described system of hate being the 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 main mechanism yeah. of, of our <laughs> electoral choices, yeah. don't you think that just has to do with mediocre candidates? Like, it, like it's... it's basically the field of candidates, including Trump, including everybody was just like, didn't make anyone feel great. Right. It's like, really? This is what we have to choose from? Maybe a Mark Cuban or like a Mark Cuban as a Democrat or it would have to be somebody like that. Somebody who, because here's the thing about Trump. It's not just that it was Trump. He was so fucking famous. Like people don't yeah. realize he was so famous. Like, I, even when I first met Trump, I met a couple of other presidents, but when I met Trump, even I felt like 
kind of starstruck because I was like, yo, this is the guy from The Apprentice. Yeah. I'm like, this is the dude. Like From The Apprentice? Yeah. Because I'm like, my dad and I used to sit and watch The Apprentice when I was in high school. And then one of the guys was from College Station where I grew up and we're like, oh my God, like that guy's on The Apprentice. Like it was a phenomenon. There's mm-hmm. like that level. It's kind of like when I met Joe Rogan. I'm like, holy shit, that's yeah. Joe Rogan. <laughs> I don't feel that way when I meet Mitt Romney or Tom Cotton or Josh Hall. And I met all of them. Um, but there's a like, lot of celebrities, right? Do you think there's some celebrities we're not even thinking about that could step in? The Rock? have to be. So I, I was about to say, I think The Rock could do it. But does he want to do it? I mean, it's terrible. Like, it's terrible gig. It's very hard to do. I don't know if The Rock necessarily has, like, the formed policy agenda. Because then here's the other problem. What what if we set ourselves up for a system where, like, these people keep winning, but, like, with Trump, they have no idea how to run a government? It's actually really hard, right? And you have to have the know-how and the trust to find the right people. This This is where the genius element comes in is you have to understand that front and you have to understand how to execute discrete tasks. Like, this is the FDR. This is why it's so hard. Like, FDR, Lincoln, TR. They were who they were, and they live in history, and their name rings, like, for a reason. And, yeah, I mean, one of the most depressing lessons I got from 2020 is at almost, it seems like, in my opinion, that we overlearn the lesson of our success and not of our failures. For example, like, we have this narrative in our head that we always have the right person at the right time during crisis. And in some cases, it was true. We didn't deserve Lincoln. We didn't deserve FDR. We didn't deserve um, We didn't deserve a lot of presidents at times of crisis. But then you're like, okay, George W. Bush, 9-11, that was terrible. Um, Reconstruction, Andrew Johnson, awful, right? Like we had several periods in our history where the crisis was there. They- They were called and they did not show up. And I really, it hadn't happened in my lifetime except for 9-11. And even then you could kind of see that as an opportunity for somebody like Obama to come in and fix it. But then he didn't do it. And then Trump didn't do it. And you realize, I feel like our politics are most analogous to like the 1910s, like all in terms of the Gilded Age, in terms of that, remember those that long period of, presidents between um between like lincoln and teddy roosevelt we were like wait like who was president like Mm -hmm. or or even in even tr was like an exception where you have like calvin coolidge who like silent cow so we're living through grover cleveland that's kind of how if i think of us within history i feel like we're in one of those times we're just waiting it feels really yeah. important to us right now like right. this is the most important moment exactly. in history but it might be the, it could just the, be a blip right a 20 yeah. 30 year blip like when you think about who was president between 1890 and 19 before i mean yeah between like 1888 and 1910 like nobody really thinks about that period of america but like that was an entire lifetime for people right like what did they how did they feel about the country that they were in. That's hilarious. That's how I kind of think about where we are right now. It's funny to think, I mean, I don't want to minimize it, but like we haven't really gone through a a World War II style crisis. So like say that there is a crisis in like several decades of that level, right? Existential risks Mm -hmm. to a large portion of the world. Then what will be remembered is World War II, maybe a little bit about Vietnam, and then whatever that crisis is. And this whole period that we see as dramatic, even coronavirus. Even 9-11. Even 9-11. Uh, 
It's like, because you can look at how many people died and all those kinds of things, all the drama around the war on terror and all those mm -hmm. kinds of things. Maybe Obama will be remembered for being the first African-American president, but then that's like, that's, yeah, that's fascinating <laughs> to think about. Oh man, even Trump will be like, oh, okay, he cool. He was that guy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like Maybe he'll be remembered as the first uh, celebrity I mean, Reagan was already a governor, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah so was. so like the first apolitical celebrity that was able, so maybe if there's more celebrities in the future, they'll say that Trump was the first person to pave the, um, the way for celebrities to win. Oh man, yeah. And uh, yeah, I still I still hold that this, this era will probably be remembered. The, you know, people say, I talk about Elon way too much, mm. but. <laughs> But the reality is like, there's not many people that are doing the kind of things he's doing is why I talk about it. Is I think this era, it's not necessarily Elon and SpaceX, but this era will be remembered by the new, the like of the space exploration of uh, the commercial, of companies getting into space exploration of space travel. And perhaps, perhaps like artificial intelligence around social media, all those kinds mm -hmm. of things. This might be remembered for that, but every, all the political bickering, all of that nonsense, that might, we might, might be very well forgotten. One way to think about it is that the internet is so young. Yeah. I think about That's it. That's right. <laughs> um, so Jeff Jarvis, he's a media scholar I respect. He's not the only person to say this, but many others have, which is that, look, this is kind of like the printing press. There was a whole 30 years war because yeah. of the printing press. Yeah. It took a long time for shit to sort out. I think that's where we're at with the internet. Like at a certain level, it disrupts everything. And that's a good thing. It can be very tumultuous. Um, I never felt like I was living through history until coronavirus. Like, yeah. you know, like until we were all locked down, I was like, I'm living through history. Like yeah. this, it, there's this very overused cliche in DC where every comm staffer wants you to think that what their boss just did is history. And I've always been like, this isn't history. This is some like stupid fucking bill, you know, whatever. But like, that was the first time I was like, this is history. Like this yeah. right here. Well, I was hoping, yeah. uh, tragedy aside, that this, I wish the primaries happened during coronavirus so that we, <laughs> right. because like, then we can see this. So, okay, here's a bunch of people facing crisis and it's an opportunity for a leader to step up. Like, I still believe the optimistic view is uh, the game theory of like influencers will always be defeated by actual great leaders. So like, Maybe the great leaders are rare, but I think they're sufficiently out there that they will step up, especially in the moments of crisis. Mm -hmm. And coronavirus is is obviously a crisis. Where like, you know, mass manufacture of tests, uh, all all kinds of infrastructure building that you could have done in 2020. There's so many possibilities for just like bold action. It makes and, me sad. Uh, none of that, even just. Forget actually doing the action, advocating for it. Yeah, right. Just saying like this, we need we need to do this. And none of that, like the speeches that Biden made, I don't even remember a single speech that Biden made because there's zero bold. I mean, their strategy was to be quiet and let Donald Trump- uh, Polarize the electorate. Po po yeah. Polarize the electorate and hope that results in, in uh, them winning. Uh, because of the high unemployment numbers and all those kinds of things, as opposed to like, let's go big, let's go with a big speech. Let's, you know, that, ah, 
yeah, it's a lost a lost opportunity in some sense. So we talked a bunch about politics, but mm -hmm. one of the other interesting things is that you're involved with is uh, uh, or involved with defining the future of is journalism. I suppose you can think of podcasting as a kind of journalism, of and, but it is. but also just writing in general, just whatever the hell the future of this thing looks like uh, is up to be defined by people like you. So what do you think is broken about journalism and what do you think is the future of journalism? I think the future of journalism looks much more like what we, you and I are doing here right now. And journalism is gonna be downstream from culture. That can be a good and a bad thing depending on how you look at it. We are gonna look at our media. Our media is gonna look much more like it did pre-mass media. And the way that I mean that is that back in the 18, um, in the 1800s in particular, especially after the invention of the telegraph, when information itself was known. So for example, like you and I don't need to, let's say you and I are competing journalists. You and I are no longer competing, quote unquote, to tell the public X event happened. All journalism today is largely explaining why did X happen? Mm -hmm. And part of the problem with that is that that means that it's all up for partisan interpretation. Mm -hmm. Now you can say that that's a bad thing. I think it's a great thing because the highest level of literacy and news viewership in America was during the time of yellow journalism, mm -hmm. was during the time of partisan journalism. Not a surprise. People like to re read the news from people that they agree with. You could say that's bad echo chambers, etc. That's the downside of it. The upside is more people are more educated. More people are interested in the news. So I think the proliferation of mass media, I mean, sorry, of this format, mm -hmm. of long form, niching, of, of not just long form. I, dude, I do, I do updates on Instagram, which are five minutes. Oh, you consider yeah. like Instagram? Yeah. Oh, almost yeah. even Twitter. Oh, of course, Twitter. Twitter is where I get my news from. Yeah. I don't read the paper. I have literally, Twitter is my news aggregator. It's called my wire, where I find out about hard events, like the president has departed the White House. But not only right? that, I don't yeah. know about you, but for, I also looked at Twitter to the exact thing you're saying, which yeah. is the response to the news. Correct. Like the thoughtful Sounds ridiculous, but you yeah. can be pretty thoughtful in a single well, tweet. If you if you follow the right people, yeah. you can get that. And so that is the future of media, which is that the future of media is it will be much smaller amount or much larger amounts of people which are famous to smaller groups. So Walter Cronkite's never going to happen again, at least in our in probably within our lifetimes, where everybody in America knows who this guy is. That that age is over. I think that's a good thing because now people are going to get the news from the people that they trust. Yes, some of it will be opinionated. I'm in my my program. I'm Crystal and I are like we are a, this. She's coming from this like view. I'm coming from this view. That's our bias when we talk about information, and we're going to talk about the information that we think is important, mm -hmm. and it has garnered a large audience. I think that's very much where the future is going to be, and the reason why I think that's a good thing is because people will be engaged more within it rather than the current system where news is highly concentrated, highly consolidated, has groupthink, has the same uh, elite production pipeline problem of everybody knows journalists all come from the same socioeconomic background and they all party together here in DC or in New York or in LA or wherever and they're part of the same monoculture and that affects what they 
uh, that affects what they report. This will cause a total dispersion of all of that. The the a the battle of our age is going to be the guild versus the non guild. So like what we see right now with the New York Times and Clubhouse, this is a very 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 intentional thing that is happening, which is that the Times talking about unfettered conversations that's happening on Clubhouse for people who aren't aware. This is important because they need to be the fetters of conversation. Mm-hmm. They need to be the interagent. That's where they get their power. They get their power from convincing Facebook that they are the ones who can fact check stuff. Yeah. They are the ones who can tell you whether something is right or wrong. That battle over unimpeded conversation and the explosion of a format that you and I are doing really well in, and then this more consolidated one, which holds cultural power and elite power and more importantly, money, right, mm-hmm. over you and I, that's the battle that we're all going to play Do you think out. unfettered conversations have a chance to win this battle? Yes, I do in the long run. In the long run, the internet is simply too powerful. But here's the mistake everybody makes. The New York Times will never lose. It will just become one of us. See- You think so? They already are. They are the largest- The Daily? The Daily. Look at The Daily. Not even that. Think about it, not in podcasting. The Times is not a mass media product. It is a subscription product for upper middle class, largely white liberals Mm. who live the same circumstances across the United States and in Europe. There's nothing wrong with that. But here's the thing. You can't be the paper of record when you're actually the paper of upper middle class white America. Your job is to report on the news from that angle and deliver them the product that they want. There's nothing wrong with that. Their stock price is higher than ever. They're making 10 times more money than they did 10 years ago, but it comes at the cost of not having a mass application audience. So like when people, I think people in our space are always like, the New York Times is gonna be destroyed. No, it's actually even better. They will just become one of us. They already are. But, They're a subscription platform. Well, yeah. yes, in terms of the actual mechanism. But right. you know, uh, New York Times is still, and I don't think I'm speaking about a particular sector. I think it, as a brand, it is. It does have the level of credibility assigned to it. Still, you know, there's politicization of it. Totally. But it, there's a credibility. Like it has much more credibility than. Forgive me, but then I think you and I have. No, no, no you're right. In, yeah. in in terms of uh, your podcast, like people are not going to be like, uh, <laughs> they're yeah. going to cite the New York Times versus right. what you said on the podcast sure. for uh, for an opinion. I, that I wonder, in the sense of battles, whether unfettered conversations, whether Joe Rogan, whether your podcast can become the have the same level of legitimacy or the the flip side new york times loses legitimacy to be at the same level of uh in terms of how we talk about it it's gonna long it's a long battle right it's gonna take a long time and i'm saying this is where i think the end state is going and look at what the times is doing they're leaning into podcasting for a reason but not just podcasting as in npr level like here's what's happening michael barbaro is a fucking celebrity right? The guy who does the daily, that guy's famous amongst these people. Cause they're like, Oh my God, I love Michael. Like I love the way he does this stuff. Again, that's fine. More people are listening to the news. I think that's a good thing. Yeah. And then who else do they hire? Ezra Klein from Vox. Yeah. Kara Swisher also from Vox who does pivot, which is an amazing podcast. Um, 
or uh, Jane Coaston. Same thing. It's personalities who are becoming bundled together within this brand, right? Here's okay. Maybe I'm just a hater. Because I loved podcasting from the beginning. I loved Green Day before they were cool, man. <laughs> but I am bothered by it. Like, why doesn't Kara Swisher, she's done successfully, I think in her own, no, she was always a part of some kind of institution. I'm not sure. but She the, started her own thing, I think. It would, but the, Recode, anyway, right, yeah. The, Recode, right. I don't know if that's her own thing. Right. Yeah, yeah. so she, she was very successful there. Why the hell did she join the New York Times with the new podcast? Why is Michael Barbaro not do his own thing? Because he gets paid and because he has, he wants the elite cachet that you just referenced within his social circle in New York, which is that I think the biggest mistake that some of the venture people make is if we give everybody the tools that those people are all going to leave to like go Substack and go independent within their social circle, sacrificing some money from being independent is worth it to be a part of the New York Times. That's sad to me because it propagates old thinking, like, Mm -hmm. you know, it propagates old institutions. And you could say that New York Times is going to evolve quickly and so on, but I would love it if there was a mechanism for reestablishing, like for building new New York Times Mm -hmm. in terms of public legitimacy. And I suppose that's uh, wishful thinking because it takes time to build trust in institutions and it takes time to build new institutions. My main thing I would say is public legitimacy as a concept is not going to be there in mass media anymore because of the balkanization of audiences. I mean, think about it, right? Like um, this is like Legion, you know, the classic stuff around a thousand true fans or or, or no, sorry, like a hundred true fans even now. Like you can make a living on the internet just talking to a hundred people. If as long as they're all high frequency traders, some of the highest people, highest paid people on Substack, they don't have that many subs. It's just that they're Wall Street guys, right? Mm -hmm. So people pay a lot of money. Again, that's great. So what you will have is an increasing balkanization of the internet, um, of audiences and of niches. People will become increasingly famous within us. You will become astoundingly famous. I'm sure you've noticed this with your fan base. Mm -hmm. I certainly have with mine. Like 99% of people have no idea who I am. But when somebody meets, they're like, oh my God, I watch your show every day, right? Like it's the only thing I watch for news, right? Like instead of casually famous, if that makes sense, be like, oh yeah, that's like Alec Baldwin, you know? Oh shit, that's Alec Baldwin. But you're not like, oh shit, I love you, Alec Baldwin. It's this is a Ben Smith of the of, of the New York Times. Actually, he wrote this column. He's like, the future is everybody will be famous, but only to a small group of people. Yeah. And I think that is true. But again, I don't decry it. I think it's great because yeah. I think that the more that that happens, the more engaged people will be, and it empowers different voices to be able to come in and then possibly I wouldn't say destroy, but compete against. I mean, look at Joe. Joe is more powerful than CNN and MSNBC and Fox all put together that gives me like immense inspiration yeah like he created the space for me to succeed and i told him that when i met him i was like dude like i listened to his podcast when i was like young and like and i remember like when i got to meet him and all that and i told him this on this pod i was like i didn't know people were millions were willing to listen to a guy talk about chimps for three straight hours including me. I didn't know that I'd be one of those people. Yeah, me too. I learned something about myself before the show, yeah. And so by creating that space, I'd be like, wait, there's a hunger here. Like he showed us all the way and none of us will ever again be as famous as Rogan because he was the first and that's fine because he created the umbrella ecosystem for us all to thrive. 
that is where I see like a great amount of hope within that story. Yeah, and the cool thing he yeah. also supports that ecosystem. He's such a he's so so generous. One of the things he paved the way on for me yeah. is to 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 show that you can just be honest, publicly honest, yes, and uh, not jealous of other people's success, but instead of be supportive and and all, all those kinds of things, just like loving towards others. He's been an inspiration. I mean, uh, to the comics community, I think there are a bunch of, uh, before that, I think there were all a bunch of competitive haters they towards were. each other. Yeah, and now he's like, cr- just injected love, Yeah, you know? They're like, they're still, like many are still resistant, but they're like, they can't help it because he's such a huge voice. <laughs> He like forces them to be like loving towards each other. And the same, I tried to, one of the reasons I wanted to start this podcast was to try to, I wanted to be like a, uh, do what Joe Rogan did, but for the scientific community, Mm -hmm. like my little circle of scientific community of like, like let's support each other. Yeah. Well, like Avi Loeb. I would have no idea who he was if it wasn't for you. I mean, I assume you put him in touch with Joe. He went on Joe's show. I had him on my show. Like millions of people would have no idea who he was if it wasn't for you. Just by the way, in terms of deep state and shadow government, Avi Loeb has to do with aliens. You better believe Joe. Dude, the last thing I, I sent to him was the American Airlines audio. Did you see that? Uh, the pilots who were, oh my God, dude, this is amazing. So like, I'm like getting excited. <laughs> this American Airlines flight crew was over New Mexico. This happened uh-huh. five or six days ago. Yeah. And they, the guy comes and he goes, hey, do you have any targets up here? A large cylindrical object just <laughs> flew over me. Okay, oh, so this no. happens. So this happens. Yes. Then a, a guy or like a radio catcher records this and posts it online. American Airlines confirms that this is authentic audio and they go all further questions should be referred to the fbi so then okay american airlines just confirmed this is a legitimate transmission fbi then the faa comes out and says we were tracking no objects in the vicinity of this plane at the time of the transmission so the only plausible explanation that online sleuths have been able to say is maybe he saw a learjet which was you know, using like open source data, FAA rules that out. So what was it? He saw a large cylindrical object while he was mid-flight, American Airlines. You can go online, listen to the audio yourself. This is a 100% no shit transmission confirmed by American Airlines of a commercial pilot over New Mexico seeing a quote unquote large cylindrical object in the air. Like I said, um, when we first started talking, I've never believed in, I've never believed more in UFOs and aliens. Yeah. I j- yeah. <laughs> this is like, awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I just wish both yeah. uh, American airlines, uh, FBI and, uh, government would be more transparent. Like there would be voices. I, I know it sounds ridiculous, but the kind of transparency that you see, maybe not Joe Rogan. He's, <laughs> he's, he's like overly transparent. He's just a comic really, but mm-hmm. just, uh, I don't know, like a podcast from the FBI. <laughs> Just like being honest, like excited, confused. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure the ca- they're being overly cautious about the re- release information. I'm sure there's a lot of information that would inspire the public, that would inspire trust in institutions that will not damage national security. Like, it seems to me obvious. And the reason they're not sharing it is because of this momentum of bureaucracy, of mm-hmm. caution, and so on. But there's probably so much cool information that the government has. The way I almost... I wouldn't say it confirmed it's real, but Trump didn't didn't declassify it. 
Like, you know that if there was ever a president that actually wanted to get to the bottom of it, it was him. Yeah. I mean, he didn't declassify it, man. And it, people begged him to. I know for a fact, because I pushed to try and make this happen, that some people did speak to him about it. And he was like, no, I'm not going to do it. So he might be afraid. Uh, that's what I mean, though. He's afraid. Yeah. They were probably all telling him, they're like, sir, you can't do this, you know, all this. Like, wow. And, and I get that. And there's this legislation written in COVID that, like, they have six months to release. Yeah. I mean, is that real? What is that? Is that was a bunch of bullshit? bullshit. I think it's bullshit. There's so many different levels of classification that people need to understand. I mean, look, I read John Podesta. He was the uh, chief of staff to Bill Clinton. He's a big UFO guy. He He tried. Like him and Clinton tried yeah. to get some of this information and they could not get any of it. And we're talking about the president and the White House chief of staff. Well, there's a whole bureaucracy built, just like you were saying, yeah. with intent. You have yes. to be like, that has to be your focus because there's a whole bureaucracy built around secrecy for probably for a good reason. So to get through to the information, there's a whole like paperwork process, all that kind of stuff. You can't just walk in and get the, unless again, with intention, that becomes your thing. Like, exactly. let's revolutionize this thing. Yeah. And then you get only so many things. Uh, it's it's sad that the, the bureaucracy has, has gotten so bulky. Um, but I think the hopeful messages from earlier in our conversation, it seems like a single person can't fix it, but if you hire the right team, it feels like you can. You can't fix everything. I don't, wanna, I don't wanna give people unrealistic expectations. You can fix a lot, especially in crisis. You can remake America. Yeah. And the reason I know that is because it's already happened twice. FDR, or in modern history, FDR and JFK. But, uh, sorry, FDR and JFK's assassination, LBJ. Two hyper-competent men who understood government, who understood personnel, and coincidentally were friends. I love this. I don't think actually people understand this. FDR met Johnson three days after he uh, won his, Cong his election to Congress, special election. He was only 29 years old. And he left that meeting and called somebody and said, this young man is going to be president of the United States someday. Like e even then, like what was within him to understand and to recognize that? And sometimes Johnson as a young member of Congress would come and have breakfast with FDR, like just two of the great political minds of the 20th century, just sitting there talking. Like I would give anything to know what there was happening. I hope they were real with each other. It was like a genuine human connection, right? That, I that seems. Well, Johnson to be, wasn't a genuine guy. So it wasn't. Certainly not. Well, I need yeah. to. I need to read those thousands of pages. Uh, I've been way too focused on Hitler. <laughs> I, I was going to say one of my goals in coming to this is I was like I got to get Lex into two things because I know he'll love it. I know he'll love LBJ if he has the takes the time to read the books. Really, one hundred percent. He's the most- Of all the presidents? I didn't say you'll love him, but you'll love the books about him because the books are a story of America, the story of politics, the story of power. This is the guy who wrote The Power Broker. Mm -hmm. These books are up there with Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire by Edward Gibbon in terms of how power works. It's a study of power. Exactly. That, no, that's, that's why Carroll wrote the books. And that's why the books are not really about LBJ. They're about power in Washington and about the consolidation of power post-New Deal the consolidation then, or they using the levers of power like Johnson knew in order to change the House of Representatives, the Senate of the United States, and ultimately the presidency of the United States, which ended in failure and disaster with Vietnam. Don't get me wrong, but he's overlooked for so many of the incredible things that he did with civil rights. Nobody else could have done it. No, no one else could have gotten it done. And the second thing is, we got to get you into World War One. We got to get you more 
into World War One because I think that's a rabbit hole, which I know you're a Dan Carlin fan. Mm-hmm. So Blueprint for Armageddon. Yeah, it's gu- good. Guaranteed. But- But there's it, fewer evil people there. Yes, but, well, but th- that's what actually, there's a banality of that evil, mm-hmm. of the Kaiser and of the uh, Austro-Hungarians and of, see, I like World War One more because it was unresolved. It's one of those periods I was talking to you about, about like sometimes you're called and you fail. Like that's what happened. I mean, 50 million people were killed in the most horrific way. Like people literally drowned in the mud, like like an entire generation. Uh, one stat I love is that, you know, Britain didn't need a draft till 1916. Like they went two years of throwing people into barbed wire voluntarily. Yeah. And- because people love their country and they love the king and they thought they were going against the Kaiser. It's just like that conflict to me, I just can't read enough about it. Also just like births, Russian revolution, you know. Yeah, I mean. Hitler. You like, can't talk about like, World War II without World War One, Right. Right. And I'm obsessed with the conflict. I've read way too many books about it. For this reason is it's unresolved. And like the, the roots of so much of even our current problems are happened in Versailles, right? Like Vietnam is because of the Treaty of Versailles. Um, many ways, the Middle Eastern problems and the division of the states there, the uh, Treaty of Versailles in terms of the penalties against Germany, but also the uh, fallout from those wars on the French and the German population, or the French and the British populations and their reluctance for war in 1939 or 1938 when, when Neville Chamberlain goes, right? Like that's one of the things people don't understand is the actual appetite of the British public mm-hmm. at that time. They didn't want to go to war. Only Churchill. He was the only one in the you know, in the gathering storm, right? Like being like, hey, this is really bad and all of that. And then even in the United States, our streak of isolationism, which swept, I mean, things were, because of that conflict, we were convinced as a country that we wanted nothing to do with Europe and its problems. And in many ways that contributed to the proliferation of Hitler and more. So like, I'm obsessed with World War One for this reason, which is that it's just like the root, it's like the culmination of the monarchies then the fall, mm-hmm. and then just all the shit spills out so, from there for like a hundred years. So World War yeah. One is like the most important shift in human history. Versus I would, like I would World War II is like a consequence of that. Yeah, it's it's so I have a degree in security studies from Georgetown. And one of the thing is that we would focus a lot on that is like war and, but also like the complexity around war. And it's funny, we never spent that much time on World War II because hmm. it was actually quite of a clean war. It's a very atypical war, as in the war object, which we learned from World War I, is we must inflict suffering on the German people and invade the borders of Germany and destroy Hitler. Like the center of gravity is the Nazi regime and Hitler. So it had a very basic begin and end. Begin, liberate France, invade Germany, destroy Hitler, reoccupy, rebuild. World War I, what are you fighting for? Like. <laughs> Are you, I mean, and nobody even knew. You, you can yeah. go, the German general staff, they were like, even in 1917, they're like, the war was worth it because now we have Luxembourg. I'm like, really? Like you killed 2 million of your citizens for fucking Luxembourg and like half of Belgium, which is now like a pond. Yeah. And same thing, the French are like, well, we're, well, the French more so, they're defending their borders. But like, what are the British fighting for? Why did hundreds of thousands of British people die? In order to preserve the balance of power in Europe and prevent the Kaiser from having a port on the English Channel, like really, that's why these. That's more what wars are. Is they become these like yeah. atypical set. Uh, they, they become these 
protracted conflicts with a necessary diplomatic resolution. It's not clean. Mm -hmm. It's very dirty. It usually leads in the outbreak of another war and another war and another war and a slow burn of ethnic conflict, which bubbles up. So that's why I look at that one. Even because it's it's more typical of warfare, in yeah, terms it, of how it works. Exactly. Yeah. It, it's it's kind of interesting. You're making me realize yeah. uh, that uh, World War II is one of the rare wars where you can make a strong case for it's a fight of good versus yeah, evil. Just war theory, obviously. Like, yeah, they're literally slaughtering Jews. Like, yeah. you know, we have to kill them. And there's yeah. one person right. doing it. I right. mean, there's one person at the core. There's, it's, uh, yeah, that's fascinating. And it's, it's short, and there's a clear aggression. It's interesting that Dan uh, Carlin has been avoiding Hitler as well. Yeah. Uh, probably for this reason. I probably for this so. reason. Yeah. I mean, but it's it's complicated too right. because there's a pressure. That guy has his demons. I, I love Dan <laughs> so much. He's so, this is the, the, I don't know if you feel this pressure, yeah. but as a creative, he feels the pressure of being maybe not necessarily correct, but maybe correct in the in the sense that his understanding he gets to the bottom of uh, of why something happened of what really happened yeah get get to the bottom of it before he can say something publicly about mm-hmm. it and he is uh, tortured by that burden I know it, you know he takes so much shit from the historical community for no reason I think he's the greatest popularizer quote unquote of history. And I wish more people in history understood it that way. He was an inspiration to me. I mean, I do some videos sometimes on my Instagram now where I'll like, I'll do like a book tour. I'll be like, here's my bookshelf of these presidents. And like, here's what I learned from this book and this book and this. And that was very much like a, a skill I learned from him of being like, as you know, as the historian writes, you know, you know I, love, I just love the way he talks. He's like, in the mud. <laughs> or, you know, he'll be like, quote, unquote. Yeah. <laughs> I just, I love he, he inspires me, man. Like, yeah. He really does to like learn more. And I've read, I bought a lot of books because of Dan Carlin. He'll be, you know, because of this guy, because of that guy. Um, in terms of, you know, another thing he does, which nobody else, and I'm probably guilty of this. He focuses on the actual people involved. Like he would tell the story of actual British soldiers ha- yes. in World War One, mm-hmm. And I probably, and maybe you're guilty of this too, we over-focus on what was happening in the German general staff, what yes. was happening in the British general staff. And he yes. doesn't make that mistake. That's why he tells real history. Yeah, and and make, it gives it a feeling. The result is that there's a feeling, you get the feeling of what it was like to be there. Exactly. You know, you're becoming, quickly becoming more and more popular uh, speaking about political issues in part, do you feel a burden, like almost like uh, the the prison of your prior convictions of having to, uh, being popular with a certain kind of audience and thereby unable to really think outside the box? I had, I've, I've really struggled with this. I came up in right-wing media. I came up a much more, doctrinaire conservative in my professional life. I wasn't always conservative. We can get to that later um, if you want. And I did feel an immense pressure after Jan- after the election by people to say, wanted me to say the election was stolen. And I knew I had a sizable part of my audience. Oh, well, here's the benefit. Most people know me from Rising, which is with Crystal and me. That 
is inherently a left-right program, so it's a large audience. So I felt comfortable and I knew that I could still be fine in terms of my numbers, whatever, because a lot many people knew me who were on the left. And if you know my right listeners abandoned me, so be it. Mm-hmm. I was had the luxury of able to take that choice. But I still felt an immense amount of pressure to say the election was stolen, to give credence to a lot of the stuff that Trump was doing, to downplay January 6th, to downplay many of the Republican senators or justify many of the Republican senators, some of whom I know who objected to the Electoral College certification and who stoked some of the flames um, that have eaten the Republican base. And I just wouldn't do it. And that was hard, man. Like, I feel more politically homeless right now than I ever have. But I have realized in the last couple of months that it's the best thing that ever happened to me. It's freedom. It's true freedom. I now say, I say exactly what I think. And it's not that I wasn't doing that before. It's maybe um, I would avoid certain topics or like I would think about things more from a team perspective of like, am I making sure that it's, it's, I'm not saying I didn't fight it. And I still, I criticize the right plenty and Trump plenty before the election and more. It's more just like, I no longer feel as if I even have the illusion of a stake within the game. I'm mm-hmm. like, I only look at myself as an outside observer and I will only call it as I see it truly. And I, I was aspiring to that before, but I, I had to have, in a way, Trump stopped the steal thing. It like took my shackles off 100%. Because I was like, no, this is bullshit. And I'm going to say it's bullshit. And I think it's bad. And I think it's bad for the Republican Party. And if people in the Republican Party don't agree with me on that, that's fine. I'm just not going to be necessarily like associated with you anymore. This is probably one of the first political related, politics related (laughs) conversations we've had. Uh, I mean, unless you count Michael Malice, who- He was great. Yeah. I, he's a funny guy. He's not so much political as he is like burn it down, man. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> he, he leans too far in anarchy for me. Yeah, I, I think he's. Uh, There's a place for that. It's it's almost well. First of all, he's uh, he's working on a new book, which I really appreciate. Outside of the, he's working on like a, a big book for a while, which is White Pill. Mm-hmm. He's also w- working on this like short little thing, which is uh, like anarchist um handbook or something like that yeah it's like anarchy for idiots or something <laughs> like that which uh i Last think is really need, but... <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> well me yeah. being an idiot right. and being curious about anarchy is, right. seems useful so i like those kinds of books that's russian heritage man yeah they're anarchist 101 yeah i i yeah. mean it's a uh i find those kinds of things a uh, useful thought experiment because uh, that's why I, I, it's, it's frustrating to me when people talk about communism or socialism or even capitalism, mm-hmm. where they can't enjoy the thought experiment of like, why did uh, communism fail? And maybe ask the question of like, are there, is it possible to make communism succeed or are there good ideas in communism? Like I enjoy the thought experiment, like yeah. the, dis, the the discourse of it, like the the reasoning and like devil's advocate and all that. People have like, seem to not have patience for that. They're like communism bad, red. I was obsessed with the question and still am. I will never be, I will never quench my thirst for Russian history. <laughs> I love yeah. that period of 1890 
1925. It's just oh, like, shit. it's yeah. so fucking crazy. Like the autocracy embodied in Tsar Alexander. And then you get this like weird fail son, Nicholas, who is kind of a good guy, but also terrible. And also Russian autocracy itself is terrible. And then I just became obsessed with the question of like, why did the Bolshevik revolution succeed? Because like people in Russia didn't necessarily want Bolshevism. People suffered a lot under Bolshevism and it led to Stalinism. How did Vladimir Lenin do it? Right? Like, and I became obsessed with that question. And it's still, I find it so interesting, which is that series of accidents of history, <laughs> incredible boldness by Lenin, incredible realpolitik, smart, unpopular decisions made by Trotsky and Stalin, and just like the arrogance of the czars and of the, mm. of the Russian like autocracy and just, but at the same time, there's all these like cultural implications of this, right? In terms of like how it became hollowed out post Catherine the Great and all that. I'm, I was obsessed with autocracy because Russia was an actual autocracy mm -hmm. and like actually, and I'm like, it was there. Like they didn't even remove serfdom to like the civil war in America. Like that's crazy. Like, you know, and nobody really talks about it. And I just became, yeah, I, I was like, was Bolshevism a natural reaction to the excesses of czarism. Mm -hmm. There is a convenient explanation where that is true. But there were also a series of decisions made by Lenin and Stalin to kill many of the people in the center left and marginalize them, to, and also not to associate with the more, quote unquote, like, uh, like amenable communists in order to make sure that their pure strain of Bolshevism was the only thing. And the reason I like that is because it comes back to a point I made earlier. It's all about intentionality, which is that you actually can will something into existence, yes. even if people don't want it. That was the craziest thing. Like they, nobody wanted this, yeah. but it still ruled for half a century or more. Actually, I mean, almost you know, that's fascinating years to think that yeah. it, there could have been a history of uh, the Soviet Union that was dramatically different than uh, Leninism, Stalinism, that was completely different, like almost would be the American story. Yeah, it, oh, easily. I mean, there's a world where, and I don't have all the characters, there's like Kerensky, and then there was like uh, whoever Lenin's number two, Stalin's chief rival, and even, I mean, look, even the Soviet Union led by Trotsky, that's a whole other world, right? Yeah. Like literally a whole other world. And yeah, it's just, I don't know. I find it so interesting. I will never not be fascinated by Russia. I uh, always will. It's funny that I get to talk to you because it's like I read this book. I forget what it's called. It won, I think it won a Pulitzer Prize. And it was like the story of, I tried to understand Russia post-Crimea because I I came up amongst people who are much more like neoconservative and they're like, fuck Russia, you know, Russia, bad, bye. And I was like, okay, like what do these people think? Mm -hmm. And we have this narrative of like the fall of the Soviet Union. And then I read this book from the perspective of Russians who lived through the fall. And they were like, this is, I was like, this is terrible. Like actually the introduction of capitalism was awful. Mm -hmm. And all, like the rise of all these crazy oligarchs. That's why Putin was, came to power to, yeah. to like restore, um, restore order to yeah. the oligarchy. And, and he still and, talks to this day. Do you guys, I mean, that's always yeah. the threat <laughs> yeah. of like, do you want to return to the 90s? Right. 
Do you want to return to the Yeltsin? And, yeah. And, and like, but the thing is in the West, we have this like our own propaganda of like, no, Yeltsin was great. That was the golden age. What could have been with right. Russia? And I was like, well, what do actual Russians think? And so that, yeah, I, I, I I'll always be fascinated by it. And then just like to understand the idea of feeling encircled by NATO and all of that, you have to understand like Russian defense theory all the way going back to the czars has always been defense in depth in terms of having Estonia, Lithuania and more as like protection of the heartland. I'm not justifying in this. So NATO shills like, please don't come after me. But and I'm, look, Estonian Estonians like NATO. They want to be in NATO. So I don't want to minimize that. I'm more just saying like, I understand him and Russia much better having done that. And we are very incapable in America. I think this is probably because my parents are immigrants and I've traveled a lot of just putting yourself in the mind of people who aren't Western and haven't lived a history, especially our lives of America's fucking awesome. We're the number one country in the world. Like, yeah. I'm like, we're literally better than you, like in many ways. And they... They they can't empathize with people who have suffered so much. Yeah. And I just, yeah, it's just so interesting to me. What about if we could talk for just yeah. a brief moment about the human of Putin and power? You are clearly fascinated by power. Mm -hmm. Do you think power changed Putin? Do you think power changes leaders? If you look at the great leaders in history, whether it's LBJ, FDR, mm -hmm. do you think power really changes people? Like, is there a truth to that kind of old proverb? It reveals. I think that's what it is. It reveals. So Putin was a much more deft politician, much more amenable to the West. If you think back, you know, to 2001 and more, right when he came, because he was still, because at that time, his biggest problem was intra-Russian politics, right? Mm -hmm. Like it was all consolidating power within the oligarchy. Once he did that by around like 2007, there's that famous time when he spoke out against the West at the Munich Security Conference. I forget when it was. Mm -hmm. And that's when everybody in the audience was like, whoa. And he was talking about like NATO encirclement and like we will not be beaten back by the West. Very shortly afterwards, like the Georgia invasion happens. And that was like a big wake up call of like we will not be pushed around anymore. I mean, he said before publicly, like, the worst thing that ever happened was the fall. Or what did he say? It was like the fall of the Soviet Union was a tragedy, right? Yeah. Of course, people in the West were like, what? I'm like, I get it, right? Like, they were a superpower. Now their population is declining. Like, it's like a petro state. It sucks. Like, I understand. Um, I understand, like, how somebody could feel about that. I think it revealed his character, um, which is that he... I think he thinks of himself probably as he always has since 2001 as like this benevolent, almost as a benevolent dictator. He's like, without me, the whole system would collapse. I'm the only guy keeping these people in. I'm the only guy keeping all these people in check. Most Russians probably do support Putin mm -hmm. because they feel like they support some form of functional government and Stability, they view it as yeah. like a check yeah. against that, which is a long, you know, has a long history within Russia too. So I don't know if it changed him. I think it just revealed him um, because it's not like he, I mean, he has a bill, you know, Navalny has put that like billion dollar palace and all that. I don't know. Sometimes I feel like Putin does that for show. He doesn't seem like somebody who indulges in all that stuff. Or no. maybe we just don't see it. Like, I don't know. Well, I don't, yeah. I, I, it's very difficult for me to understand. I've been hanging yeah. out, thanks to Clubhouse. <laughs> 
uh, a lot of I've gotten to learn a lot about the Navalny folks, and it's been very educational. Made me ask a lot of important questions about what, um, you know, question a lot of my assumptions about what I do and don't know. But I'll just say that I do believe, you know, there's a lot of the Navalny folks say that Putin is incompetent and is a is a bad uh, executive, like is bad at basically running government. But to me, well, why do Russians not think that? Right. Is it, well, well, they, they, they probably they say would propaganda. say it's the press. Right. Yeah, they would say the control. There is, there is a strong either control or pressure on the press, but I think there is a legitimate support and love of Putin in Russia that is not grounded in just misinformation and uh, propaganda. There's there's legitimacy there. Mostly, I tried to remain apolitical and actually genuinely remain ap- apolitical. I am legitimately not interested in the politics of Russia of today. I feel I have some responsibility and I'll take it uh, that responsibility on as I need to, but my fascination as it is perhaps with you in part is in the historical figure of Putin. Mm-hmm. I know he's currently president, but I'm almost looking like as if yeah. I was a kid in 30 years from now reading about him, studying the the human being, the the games of power that are played that got him to gain power, to maintain power, what that says about his human nature, the the nature of the bureaucracy that's around him, the nature of Russia, the people, all those kinds of things, as opposed to the politics and the manipulation and the corruption and the control of the media that results in misinformation. You know, those are those are the bickering of the day, just like we we're saying, mm-hmm. what will actually be remembered about this moment in history? Totally. He's a transformational figure in Russian history, really, like the bridge between the fall of the Soviet Union and the chaos of Yeltsin. That will be how he's remembered. The only question is what comes next and what he wants yeah. to come next. That's I'm always fat. I'm like, he's getting up. How old is he? 60 something? Yeah, okay. 60. So he would be, I think he would be 80. So with yeah. uh, with a change of the uh, constitution, he right. cannot be president until uh, six, four, uh, 2034, I think it is. Uh-huh. So he would be like 80 something and he would be in power for over 30 years, which is longer than Stalin. So, but he still, he still seems to be- He seems fit. Yeah, <laughs> he, I think he's gonna be around for a long time. But this is a fascinating question that you yeah. ask, which is like, what does he want? I don't know. Yeah, that's the question. I don't, I, I the, and this is where I think, given all of his behavior and more, I don't know if it's about money. I don't know if it's about enriching himself. Obviously he did to the tune of billions and billions and billions of dollars, but- I think he probably, he's as close to like an actual Russian nationalist, like at the top, who really does believe in Russia as its rightful superpower. Everything he does seems to stem from that opposition to NATO, intro to Syria, like wanting to play a large role in uh, affairs, deeply distrustful and yet coveting of the European powers. Like, look, I could describe every czar you know, in those same yeah. language. Like every czar falls into the exact same category. Yeah, and, and yeah. I mean, it makes me wonder, right. well, looking at some of the biggest leaders in human history, to ask the question of wh- what was the motivation? What was the motivation for even just the revolutionaries like Lenin, Trotsky, mm-hmm. and Stalin? What was the motivation? Because it sure as hell seems like the motivation was at least in part the driven by the idea by ideas, not self 
interest of like power. For Lenin, it was, I think he was a true believer and, a, and an actual narcissist who thought he was the only one who could do it. Stalin, I do think, just wanted power and realized, well, I don't know. Look, he wrote very passionately when he was young. And um, he was, he and, really believed in communism. In the beginning, he did. I, I, I'm always, what I'm always fascinated is I'm like, around 1920, what happened, right? Post-revolution, you crush the whites. Now it's all about consolidation. That's where the games really begin. Yeah. Um, and then I'm like, I don't think that was about communism. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Maybe it became a useful propaganda tool, but it still seemed like he believed in it, uh, whether it was, of course, this is the question. I mean, I, this is a problem with, with uh, conspiracy theories for me. And this is legitimate criticism towards me about conspiracy theories, which is, uh, you know, just because you're not like this doesn't mean others aren't like this. So like, mm -hmm. I can't believe that somebody be, like deeply two-faced. Oh, I've met them. You're welcome to Washington. <laughs> <laughs> but like, I think that I would be able to detect. I like, don't think so. no. Those people are good. Yeah. Well, this my question is. I've can, seen it. I mean, you know, well, so there's yeah. difference. There's there's two-faced. Like, uh, there's different levels of two-faced. Like, yeah. what I mean is to be killing people, and uh, it's like House of Cards style, right? Mm -hmm. And and still present a front like you're, you're like you're not killing people. Yeah. I don't know if it's, I guess it's possible, but I just don't see that at scale. Uh, like there's a lot of people like that, and I don't. I have trouble imagining um, some. You know, that's such a compelling narrative that people like to say. Like people, that's the conspiratorial mindset. I think that skepticism is really powerful and important to have because. It's true, a lot of powerful people abuse their power, but saying that about, I feel like people over-assume that. It's like, I see that with uh, use of steroids often in sports. <laughs> yeah. People seem to make that claim about like everybody who's successful. Right. And I wanna be very, I don't know, something about me wants to be cautious because uh, I wanna give people a chance. Being purely cynical isn't helpful. People say right. this about me. He's only saying this to do this. Yeah. But at the same time, being naively yeah. optimistic about everything is also uh, counterproductive because exactly. people are going to fuck you over. And more importantly, that doesn't bother me. More importantly, you're not going to be able to reason about how to create systems that are going to be robust to corruption, to uh, m malevolent uh, like parties. So, mm -hmm. so you, in order to create, you, you have to have a healthy balance of both, I suppose. Especially if you want to actually engineer things that 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 work in this world that has evil in it, right. I can't believe there's a book of Hitler on, on the desk. <laughs> uh, we've mentioned a lot of books throughout this conversation. Mm -hmm. I wonder, and this makes me really curious to explore in a lot of depth the kind of books that you're interested in. I think you mentioned in your show mm -hmm. that you uh, you provide recommendations. Yes, I do. In the form of spoken word, mm -hmm. can you beyond what we've already recommended mention books, whether it is historical, uh, nonfiction, or whether it's more like philosophical or even fiction that had a big impact on your life? Is there, is there a few that you can mention? Sure. I already talked about the Johnson book, so I'll leave that alone. Robert A. Caro, he's still alive, thank God. He's finishing the last book. Uh, I hope he makes it. So that those Johnson books... Second, like, can I ask you a yeah. question about those books? Yes. What the hell do you fit into so many pages? Everything, man. 
<laughs> Let me tell you this. So I'll just give it an anecdote. This is why I love these books. The beginning, the first book yeah. is about Lyndon Johnson. Yes. His life to when he f- gets elected to Congress. The book begins with a history of Texas and its weather patterns and then of his great, great grandfather moving to Texas. Yes. Then the story of that. About a hundred or so pages in, you get to Lyndon Johnson. <laughs> yes, that's how that's how you do it. Okay. Which is you so it's get like a Tolstoy style uh, it's, retelling. This is the thing: it's not a biography; it's a story of the times. That's what great well, biography. So another one. This isn't part of my list, so don't. Okay. Uh, uh, is <laughs> right. Grant Off the record. Ron Chernow. Ron Chernow's Grant. It's a thousand pages, and the reason I tell everybody to read it is, it's not just the story of Grant; it is the story of pre-Civil War America the Mexican-American War, the Civil War, and Reconstruction, all told in the life of one person who was involved in all three. Mm. Most people don't know anything about the Mexican-American War. It's fascinating. Most people don't know anything about Reconstruction. Now, more so, because people are talking, it's a hot topic now. I've been reading about it for years. That is another thing people need to learn a lot more about. In terms of non-history books, the book that probably had the most impact on me, which is also... It's historical nonfiction is I am obsessed with Antarctic exploration. (laughs) And it all began with a book called Shackleton's Incredible Journey, which is the collection of diaries of everybody who was on Shackleton's journey. For those who don't know, um, Shackleton was the last explorer of the heroic age of Antarctic exploration. He led a ship called the Endurance, which froze in the ice um, off the coast of Antarctica in 1914. And they didn't have radios or the last exploration, a last one without the age of radio. And he happens to freeze in the ice. And then the ship collapses after a year frozen in the ice. And this man leads his entire crew from that ship onto the ice with a team of dogs survives out on the ice for another year with three little lifeboats and is able to get all of his men, every single one of them alive to an island hundreds of miles away called Elephant Island. And when they got there, he had to leave everybody behind except for six people. And him and two other guys, I'm forgetting their names, navigated by the stars 800 miles through the Drake Passage with seas of hundreds of feet to Prince, I think it's called Prince George's Island. Mm -hmm. And then when they got to Prince George's Island, they landed on the wrong side and they had to hike from one side to the other to go and meet the whalers. And every single one of those things was supposed to be impossible. Nobody was ever, nobody was ever supposed to hike that island. It wasn't done again until like the 1980s with professional equipment. Mm -hmm. He he did it after two years of starvation. Nobody was ever supposed to make it from Elephant Island to Prince George. The guy, they had to hold him steady, his legs, so that he could chart the stars. And if they miss this island, they're into open sea. They're dead. And then before that, how do you survive for a year on the ice? On seals. And before that, he kept his crew from depression frozen one year in the ice. It's inc- just an amazing story. And it, it made me obsessed with Antarctic exploration. So I've read like 15 books on- What the hell is it about the human spirit? That it's amazing. That's, to... that's the thing about Antarctica is it brings it out of you. you. So for example, I read another one recently called Mawson's Will. 
Douglas Mawson. He was an Australian. He was on the one of the first Shackleton, uh, Frost, Robert Frost expeditions. He leads an expedition down to the south. Him and uh, a partner, they're leading uh, exploration. It's 1908, something like that. Yes. They're going around Antarctica um, with dog teams. And one of the, what happens is they keep going over these snow bridges where there's a crevice, but it's covered in snow. Mm -hmm. And so the one of the, the lead driver the dogs go over and they plummet and that sled takes with it. So the guy survives, but that sled takes all their food, half the dogs, their stove, the, the camping tent, the tent specifically designed for the snow, mm -hmm. everything. Mm -hmm. And they're hundreds of miles away from base camp. He and this guy have to make it back there in time before the ship comes to come get them on an agreed upon date. And he makes it, but the guy he was with, he dies. And it's a crazy story. They, they have, first of all, they have to eat the dogs. The, a really creepy part of Antarctic exploration is everyone ends up eating dogs at different points. Yeah. Um, and part of the theory, which is so crazy, is that the guy he was with was dying because they were eating dog liver. And dog liver has a lot of vitamin E, which if you eat too much of it can give you like a poisoning. And so- uh, Mawson by trying to help his friend was giving him more of liver. Of all the things yes, that kills you. I know, his dog liver. Uh. And so his friend ends up dying, have a horrific heart attack. All of that. Mawson crawls back hundreds of miles away, makes it back to base camp hours after the ship leaves. And two guys, or a couple of guys stayed behind for him and he basically has to recuperate for like six months before he can even walk again. But it's like you were saying about the human spirit. It's like, Antarctica brings that out of people. Or Amundsen, the guy who made it to the South Pole, Robert Amundsen, oh my God. Like this guy trained his whole life in the ice from Norway to make it to the South Pole. And he beat Robert Frost, the, the British guy with all this money and all these. I, I could go on this forever. I'm, I'm obsessed with Antarctica. Uh, well, stories. first of all, I'm yeah. going to, you know, yeah. I'm going to take this part of the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to set it to music. Yeah. I'm going to listen to it because I've been whining and bitching about uh, running 48 miles with Goggins this <laughs> next weekend. And this is, this yeah. is going to be so easy. I'm just going to listen to this over and over in my head. You're you know, going to be- Elon. Elon's obsessed with Shackleton. He talks yes. about him all the time. He yeah. uses- yeah. I, I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. He uses an example of- the, that is a, as an example of what Mars colonization would be like. He's right. <laughs> <laughs> no, that Antarctica is as close yeah. to you can simulate that. Um, the Antarctica is as close to what you could simulate what it would get. That that Nat Geo series on Mars, I'm not sure if you watched it. It's incredible. Elon's actually in it, um, and it kind of and it's like they get there, everything goes wrong, somebody dies, like it's horrible. It, they can't find any water. It's not working. So what? Like, what is it? Is it like simulating the experience of what it'd be like yeah. to colonize? So it's like a docu series where the fictionalized part is the like astronauts on Mars, but then they're interviewing people like Elon Musk and others who are the ones who like paved the way to get to Mars. Yeah. So this is a really interesting concept. I think it's on Netflix, and yeah, I agree with him one hundred percent. Which is that. The first guys to make, like, for example, Robert Frost, who uh, uh, went to Australia, well, or, sorry, to Antarctica, the British explorer who was beaten to the South Pole three weeks by Robert Amundsen, mm -hmm. he died on the way back. And the reason why is because he wasn't well prepared. He was arrogant. He uh, didn't have the proper amounts of supplies. His team had terrible morale. 
Antarctica is a brutal place. If you fuck up one time, you die. And it's like you and this is what you read a lot about, which is the reason why such heroic characters like Shackleton shine is a lot of people died. Like there were some people who got frozen in the eye. I mean, man, this again also came to the North exploration. So I read a lot about like the exploration of the North Pole Mm -hmm. and same thing. These unextraordinary men take people out into the ice and get frozen out there for years and shit goes so bad. They end up eating each other. They all die. There's a famous, I want, I'm forgetting his name, the British Franklin expedition where they went searching for them for like 20 years (laughs) and they eventually came across a group of Inuit who were like, oh yeah, we saw some weird white men here like 15 years ago and they find their bones and there's like saw marks which show that they were eating each other. I so mean, history remembers the ones who didn't eat each other. <laughs> yeah, we were. Well, yeah, we remember the ones who made it. But there are. Uh, and that would be the story of Mars. as That well. will be the story of Mars. So but and nevertheless, that's the interesting thing yeah. about Antarctica. Nevertheless, something about human nature drives us to explore it. Yes. that And that seems to be like, you know, a lot of people have this kind of, to me, frustrating conversations like, well, Earth is great, man. Why do we need to colonize Mars? Like you just don't get it. It's, yeah. It. I don't know. I mean, I don't know. It's just the same people that say, like, why are you running? Like, why are you running a marathon? <laughs> what are you running from, man? Yeah. I don't know. It's pushing the limits of the uh, of the human mind of the of what's possible. It's, it's George like, Mallory because it's there. Yeah. It's simple. Like, and that and that somehow actually the result of that, if you want to be pragmatic about it there's something about pushing that limit that has side effects that you don't expect that will create a better world back home for the people not necessarily on earth but like just in general it raises the quality of life for everybody even though the initial endeavor doesn't make any sense Mm -hmm. the very fact of pushing the limits of what's possible then has side effects of uh, benefiting everybody and it's difficult to predict ahead of time or what those benefits will be. Same with colonizing Mars. It's unclear what the benefits will be for Earth or in general. Well, with what, struggling... what did we get from the moon? What did we get from Apollo, right? Th- technically, and there were a lot of socialists at the time making this argument. They're like, all this money going... You know what? We went to the fucking moon in yeah. 1969. That was amazing. The greatest feat in human history, Period. What did we learn from it? We learned in, we learned about interstellar or interplanetary travel. We learned that we could do something off of a device less powerful than the computer in my pocket. Yeah. Like the the amount of potential locked within my pocket and your pocket. I mean, this is if you were to define my politics in one way, it's greatness. Like national a quest for national greatness there is no greatness without fulfilling the ultimate calling of the human spirit which is more it's not enough and why should it be it wasn't enough you know our ancestors could have been content to sit well actually many of them were were content to sit and say these berries will be here for a long time and they got eaten and they died and it's the ones who got out and went to the next place and the next place and went across the Siberian land bridge and went across more and it just did extraordinary things. The craziest ones, we are their offspring and we fail them if we don't go into space. That's how I would put it. You should run for president. <laughs>
I'm just pro space, man. I love space. No, you're pro yeah. do, doing yeah. difficult things yeah. and pushing, uh, exploring the world in all of its forms. Right. I hope that kind of spirit permeates politics too. That same kind of uh, can can. I well, it can, and yeah. I hope so. I don't know if you want to stay on it, but sure. I think that was book number one or oh, two. Oh shit! Yeah. Okay. <laughs> all right. All right. Um, is there something well, this about? one is a second. This actually is a corollary to that, which is Sapiens. And I know that's a very normal, normy answer. Yeah. Um, one of the best selling books. I think there's a reason for that. Yeah. You've all know Harari. Okay. Okay. Look. Yes, he didn't do any new research. I get that. All he did was aggregate. I'm sure he's very controversial in the scientific community. Yeah. But guess what? He wrote a great book. It's a very easy to read general explanation of the rise of human history. And it helps challenge a lot of preconceptions. Are we special? Are we an accident? Are we more like a parasite? Or are we not? What is there a destiny to all of us? I don't know. You know, if anything, it's like what I just described, which is more move, move out. Um, the evolution of money. Like, I know he gets a lot of hate, but I think that he writes it so clearly and well that for your average person to be able to read that, you will come away with a more clear understanding of the human race than before. And I think that that's why it's worth it. I agree with you 100%. I, uh, I'm ashamed to, I usually don't bring up Sapiens because it's like- Yeah, it's like- Everybody's <laughs> uncle has read it, but it's, yeah. it's that's a good thing. It's actually. one of, yeah. It is one of the. Right. I think it'll be remembered as one of the great books of this particular era. Uh, yeah, because it's it's so clearly it's like the selfish gene with Dawkins. I mean, it mm -hmm. just aggregates so many ideas together and puts language to it that's makes it very useful to talk about. So it is yeah. one of the great books. One hundred percent. Another one is definitely Born to Run for the same reason mm -hmm. by Christopher McDougall, which is that- I'm just gonna listen to this whole podcast next week. <laughs> you have <Right>. to. <laughs> you, well, you should, because it you are inheriting our most basic skill, which is running. And reimagining human history, uh, or reimagining like what we were as opposed to what we are is very useful because it helps you understand how to tap into primal aspects of your brain, which just drive you. And the reason I love McDougal's writing is because I love anybody who writes like this. Malcolm Gladwell, um, who else? Michael Lewis, people who find characters to tell a bigger story. Michael Lewis finds characters to tell us the story of the financial crisis. Um, you know, Malcolm Gladwell writes, finds characters to tell us the story of learning new skills and outliers and you know, and whatever his latest book is. Uh, I forget what it's called. And But McDougal tells the vignettes and a tiny story of a single person in the history of running and like how it's baked into your DNA. And I think there was just something very useful to that for me for being like, I don't need to go to the gym or like, I'm not saying you should still go to the gym. I'll be clear. I'm saying like, in order to fulfill like who you are, you can actually tap into something that's the most basic. Um, I, I don't know if, I'm sure if you listened to the David Cho episode with Joe Rogan, um, you know, I mean, oh, where he eats yeah, the animal, yeah, that, right, guy, with the yeah, baboon yeah. when he goes hunt, and there's something to that, man. There's something to that, which is like they are living the way that we were supposed to. Yeah, we're not supposed. Well, I don't want to put a normative judgment on it. They are living the way that we used to. Yeah, there's it something feels very honest somehow to, to to our true nature. There's a guy I follow on Instagram. I've come from Paul Saladino, Carnivore MD. Yeah, he just went over there to the Hadza um, to live with them. And I was watching his stuff just like, I was like, man, there's there's something in you that wants to go. Yeah. Like, I'm like, I want to do that. 
Yeah. I'm not, I wouldn't be very good at it, but like I want to. <laughs> yeah. I'm so glad that yeah. somebody who yeah. thinks deeply about politics yeah. is so fascinated with exploration and with the very basic nature, like human nature, nature of our existence. I love that. Mm. You, there's something in you. And, and still you're stuck in DC. <laughs> for now, for now. <laughs> Speaking of which, yeah. uh, the you are from Texas. Yes. What do you make of the future of Texas politically, culturally, uh, economically? I am in part moving, well, I'm moving to Austin. Congrats. That's awesome. But I'm also doing the Eric Weinstein advice, which is like, dude, you're not married. You don't have kids. Fly everywhere. Yeah. There's no such thing as moving. What <laughs> what what are you moving? You're like you're like like your three suits and some shirts and right. underwear. What exactly is the move entail? <laughs> so I have nothing. So I'm basically, you know, it's it's very just remain mobile, but there's a promise, there's a hope to uh, Austin outside of I mean my uh, outside of just like friendships, I have mm -hmm. no, it's a very different culture that Joe Rogan is creating. I'm mostly interested in the, what the next Silicon Valley will be, what the next hub of technological innovation. And there's a promise, uh, maybe a dream for Austin being that next place. It's that very possible. Doesn't have this, the baggage of uh, some of the political things, mm -hmm. maybe some of the sort of, um, things that hold back the beauty of, that makes capitalism, that makes innovation so powerful, which is like uh, meritocracy, which is excellence. Uh, diversity is exceptionally important, but not uh, it should not be the only priority. It has to be something that uh, it coexists with a like insatiable drive towards excellence. And uh, it seems like Texas is a nice place, like having a, Austin, which is like a kind of uh, this weird, I hope it stays weird, man. I love weird I, people. I don't know about that, but uh, we can get into <laughs> But it. But there's this uh, hope is it remains this weird place of brilliant innovation amidst the, uh, a state that's like more conservative. So like there's a nice balance of everything. What are your thoughts about the future of Texas? I think it's so fascinating to me because I never thought I would want to move back, but now I'm beginning to be convinced. So you hear I'll, that, look, Joe? I'm going to send yeah. you this clip. <laughs> I am. I'm being honest, and many Texans will hate me for this. Texas was not a place that was kind to me, quote unquote. And this is because of my own parent. Look, I was raised in College Station, Texas, which is a town of fifty thousand. It's a university town. It exists only for the university. So it was a very, I did not get the full Texas experience, purely speaking from a college station experience. But growing up, first, you know, first generation, or I forget what it is, whatever. I'm the first American. I was born and raised in college station. My parents are from India. Being raised in a town where the dominant culture was predominantly like white evangelical Christian was hard. Like it was just difficult. And I think of it there in the beginning i would say like ages like zero to like eight it was like cultural ignorance as in like they just don't know how to interact with you um and there was a level of always there was like the evangelical kind of antipathy towards like you being not christian you know my parents are hindu like that's how i was raised 
And so like there was that. But 9-11 was very difficult. Like 9-11 happened when I was in third or fourth grade. And that changed everything, man. Like, I mean, our temple had to like print out t-shirts. And I'm not saying this is a sob story, to be clear. I'm still actually largely for my adult life identified on the political right. So don't take this as some like, you know, race manifesto. I'm just telling it like this is what happened, which is that like we had, it was just hard to be brown, frankly, and to have some of the fallout from 9-11 and during Iraq. And the reason I am political is because I realize in myself, I have a strong rebellious nature against systems and structures of power. Mm. And the first people I ever rebelled against were all the people telling me to shut up and not question the Iraq war. So the reason I am in politics is because I hated George W. Bush with a passion and I hated the war. And I was so, again, my entire background is largely in national security for this reason, which is I was obsessed with the idea of like, how do we get people who are not going to get us into these quagmire situations in positions of power? That's how I became fascinated by power in the first place was all a question of how do this happen? Like, how did this catastrophe happen? I realize it's not as bad as like, you know, previous conflicts, but this one was mine. And to see how it changed our domestic politics forever. And so that was my rebellion. But it's funny because I identified as a left on the left when I was growing up, up until I was 18. I had a, also a funny two-year stint. This is where everything kind of changed for me. When I was 16, actually, I moved to Qatar, to Doha, Qatar, because oh, my wow. dad was a dean of, or associate dean of Texas A&M University mm-hmm. at Doha. So my last two years of high school were at this. I went from this small town in Texas, and I love my parents because- they could recognize that I had within me that I was not a small town kid. So they took me out of this country every chance they got. I traveled everywhere and constantly let me go. And so I was, I went from school in college station to like this ritzy private school, American school. Mm -hmm. Best thing that ever happened to me because first of all, it got me out of college station. Second, at that time, I had this annoying streak of I wouldn't call it being anti-America, but you don't appreciate America. Mm-hmm. Let me tell everybody out there listening, leave for a while. You will miss it yeah. so much. Yes. You do not know what it is like to not have freedom of speech until you don't have it. Yeah. And I was going to I was going to high school with these guys in the Qatari royal family and all I wanted to do was speak out of how they were pieces of shit for the way that they treated Indian citizens in that country who are basically used as slave labor. And I could not say one word because I knew I would be deported and I knew my dad would lose his job and my mom would lose her job and that we would be forced out of the country. You don't know what it's like to live like that or to be in a society where like, you know, you have like a high school girlfriend or something and you can't even touch in public or you're lectured for public decency. Like, listen, I've lived under a Gulf monarchy now. And I have, that turned me into the most pro-America guy <laughs> ever. Like, I came back so, like, America, like, pro, yeah. and I, that's, I still am, frankly, yeah. because of that experience. Yeah. Living, living abroad, like, that will do it to you. Live in a non-democracy. You have, even in Europe, I would say, you guys aren't living as free as we are here. It's awesome. And well, see, I love it. You're ultimately yeah. another human being than the yeah. one who left Texas. Yeah. 
So, I mean, yeah. have you actually considered moving to Texas and broadly just outside of your own story, what do you think is the future of Texas? What is the future of Austin? Yes. There's so much transformation seemingly happening now related to Silicon Valley, related That's to California. The part to me, which is that since I left, it's changed dramatically, which is that it used to be like this conservative state where the main money to be made was oil. And everybody knew that. Petro, it was a Petro state, Houston, all of that. Austin was always weird, but it was more of a music town and a university town. It was not a tech town. But in the 10 years or so since I left, I have begun to realize, I'm like, well, the Texas I grew up in is over. It is not a deep red state in any sense of the, in any sense of the term. The number one U-Haul route in the country pre-pandemic already was San Francisco to Austin, okay? So like you have this massive influx of people from California and New York, wow. and the state, the composition of it is changed dramatically. The intra-composition and the outra, or the, yeah. So the intra-composition, it's become way more urban. It's from when I grew, when I grew up, mm. Texas was a much more rural state. Its politics were much more static. It looked much more like Rick Perry, like that. He yeah. was a very accurate representation <laughs> yes. of who we were. Now, I don't think that that's the case. Texas is now a dynamic economy, not just 100% reliant on oil because of its kind of like, I, I would call it like regulatory arbitrage relative to California and New York offers a large incentive to people who are more, I wouldn't say culturally liberal, but they're not necessarily like culturally conservative, like mm -hmm. the people who I grew up with. That's changed the whole state's politics. Beto came two points away from beating Ted Cruz. I'm not saying the state's going to go blue. I think the Republican Party will just change and we'll have to readjust. But the reurbanization of Texas has made it, uh, I'll put it in this way, much more, uh, much, much more attractive to me than the place that I grew up. And then right? from my perspective, yeah. uh, well, first of all, I love yeah. uh, some of the the cowboy things that Texas stands right. for. But my, for more practically, from my perspective, the injection of the uh, tech innovation right. that's moving to Texas has made it very exciting to me. It seems like outside of all that, maybe you can speak to the weird in Austin. It seems like uh, I know that Joe Rogan is uh, a rich sort of uh, almost like mainstream at this point. Yeah, right. But he's also attracting a lot of weirdos. And so mm -hmm. is Elon. And a lot of those weirdos are my friends. And they're like like Michael Malice, like th those weirdos. <laughs> and it's like, I have a hope for Austin that all kinds of different flavors of weirdos will get injected. It's possible. You know, I, I actually think the most significant thing that happened were Tesla moving there. Yeah. The reason why is I love Joe, obviously, but like he can only attract X amount of people. Yeah. Elon actually employs thousands yes. of people. Yeah. And then you also, Oracle. Oracle's decision to move to Austin is just as important because those two men, Larry, was Ellison, right? Yeah. Ellison and uh, Elon, they actually employ tens of thousands of people collectively. That can change the nature of the city. Yeah. So- you combine that with Joe bringing this entire new entertainment complex with the bodies of people who will appreciate said yeah. entertainment complex. S spend you money just, on the entertainment. Exactly. Yeah. You just remade the entire city. Yeah. And and that's that's why I'm fascinated. And obviously there's network effects, which is now that all those people are down there, 
I mean, if I were Elon Musk, I would donate a shit ton of money to the University of Texas and I would turn it into my Stanford for Silicon Valley. Let's introduce some competition and let UT Austin hire the best software developers, engineers, professors and more and turn Texas into a true like Austin revolving door hub where people come to UT Austin to get an internship at Tesla and then become an executive there and then create their own company in their own garage in Austin, which is the next Facebook, Twitter. That's how it happens. This is why I'm much more skeptical of Miami. There's a whole like tech right. Miami crew. I'm like, yeah, like there's no university. It's very inorganic. Um, look, I think Miami is awesome. I just like, I don't know if the same building blocks are there. And also no multi-billion dollar companies which employ thousands of people are coming there. That's the ingredient. It's not just Joe Rogan. It's not just even Elon Musk, if he's still operated in California. It's all the people he employs. I think that is where I think Texas is going to dramatically change within the next 10 years. Alternative to our, it's already become a more urbanized state that's moved away from oil and gas um, in terms of like its emphasis, not necessarily in terms of its real economics. And 10 years from now, I don't think it will be necessarily the main prop like of the of the town. The only question to me is how that manifests politically, because it's very possible, though, because a lot of these workers themselves are California culturally liberal. You could see a Gavin Newsom type person getting elected governor of Texas or like the uh, mayor of Austin. I mean, look, mayor of Austin's already a Democrat, right? Like, I mean, uh, Joe has his own problems with Austin. Uh, It's funny. I remember him leaving LA and I'm like, "Eh, have you been to Austin? (laughs) It ain't, you know, it's not everything it's cracked up to be, you know, necessarily. But no matter what, you know, a new place allows the possibility for new ideas, uh, even if they're somehow left-leaning and all those kinds of things. I do think the only two things missing from Austin and Texas are uh, two dudes in a suit <laughs> that sometimes have a podcast talking a bunch of nonsense on a mic. So let's let's bring the best suit game to Texas. I hope you do uh, make it to Texas uh, yeah, at some point. Thanks so much for talking to me. Thanks for listening to this conversation with Sagar and Jetty. And thank you to our sponsors, Jordan Harbinger Show, Grammarly Grammar Assistant, Eight Sleep Self-Cooling Bed, and Magic Spoon Low Carb Cereal. Click the sponsor links to get a discount and to support this podcast. And now, let me leave you with some words from Martin Luther King Jr. about the idea that what is just and what is legal are not always the same thing. He said, never forget that what Hitler did in Germany was legal. Thank you for listening and hope to see you next time.